Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 65 for August MMXIII. Episode 65 is brought to you by this public service announcement. What's this stuff? Sunscreen. It blocks the sun's harmful rays. Want some? Nope. I'm going to stay out all day and get a great tan. Look at your back. It's as red as a lobster. I don't feel so good. Hey, Stella, your friend's been out in the sun without protection. Leatherneck. Next time, use the sunscreen. Wear a hat and a shirt and look for some shade when it's really sunny. A bad sunburn could make you sick and even put you in the hospital. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are October's Batgirl number 24 and Birds of Prey number 24, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Finally, Backworld Oracle is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, high-performance, noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off the whole order, plus free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com, plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Well, since yes, in fact, you are hearing uh, my nice 
<laughs> voice, I survived the Tough Mudder. And I guess some people were wondering, you know, what is this Tough Mudder when I posted uh, on Twitter and on the Backroll Oracle Facebook that, you know, if you don't hear from me, then that's what happened. And Tough Mudder is, in fact, a, a, it's basically a race, an endurance race. It's a challenge. Um, more so a challenge than a race because they really try to get you to work together, work with either your team or if you come by yourself, which I did, you know, work with others uh, to just make it through. And for the most part, the races are 10 to 13 miles long, around 20 obstacles or so. And these obstacles are developed by British Special Forces. So you can imagine there's some intense things uh, that go on. And they're all over the world. I mean, there's some in Australia and England and then, you know, a slew of them in the United States. And originally I was going to do one. Uh, they said, you know, Virginia Beach. They always say a particular location, but they try to do it within... 90 miles or 90 minutes of that particular location. So Virginia Beach, it wasn't really. It was sort of between Virginia Beach and Richmond. And that was June 8th through 9th. But then we had a tropical storm come through and basically cancel that entire event. So I switched because I did not want to do... My other option was to do a uh, mid-Atlantic one in the fall. And I didn't really want to. Uh, starting to get cold. And I would prefer not to do the Arctic Anima um, in the cold so I switched to one in Buffalo, New York, which is actually where I grew up. And again, it wasn't really Buffalo, it was more um, Andover, New York, where Alfred State University is. And that was the 27th, 28th, and I decided to do the Sunday. Saturday is really packed. You've got like 15,000 people, and that maybe with spectators involved as well because you can pay to be a spectator and they have a specific route that you can go along and see different obstacles and cheer on uh, your family or friends. Uh, I s did Sunday, a lot less people, which I think is, you know, less stressful having to uh, wait for people for obstacles or just having people crowd around you as you're running up. And it was an ATV park. So there were some up and down hills. I wasn't expecting it to be as up and down as it was because there was uh, one obstacle called cliffhanger, which was basically like at least a half a mile hike upwards. And uh, it just definitely reminded me of something that uh, I would encounter at Wintergreen, which they had, you know, at a, at a ski resort, basically. So... For the most part, I ran the flats and the downhills, the uphills, unless it was really muddy and slippery. The uphills, I tried to conserve my energy and just walked them for the most part. Sometimes if it was a short uphill, then I would run. But, I mean, you're going, this one was 11 miles, so I mean, you're going 11 miles. Do I want to get rid of all of my energy just to prove something and run up this hill? So that was basically my thinking. Of course, there are some water stations, and a couple of the water stations, they had bananas, and they had some Cliff Bar-like energy chews. Um, so I definitely used all those. My goal, of course, was, well, first goal was survive. Second goal, to do it under four hours. Average time is about four hours. And I actually completed the course in 3.5 hours. So I was pretty happy with that. Some highlights. Well, first of all, there were some obstacles that I was absolutely dreading. I was dreading the elect 
electroshock obstacles. The first one was electric eel. And so you've got these dangling wires that have a shock attached to them, 10,000 volts. And you have to crawl through the mud. So they're just hitting there. And the first hit that I got, there was someone next to me and he just yelled out like the F word. And then right after, and I looked back at him and then right after I got hit and I'm like, oh my gosh, I did not expect. I mean, I was prepared for the worst, believe me, but it 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 is pretty, uh, pretty intense. So then... I mean, if you imagine whatever limb this this electrode is touching, the entire like muscle just seizes up, and it was just not pleasant. And so hitting my arm was probably the worst. The leg, I could feel it, but it wasn't as bad, I think, just because there's more there. And I just absolutely did not want it to hit my head. So h- however much I could, I was like diving under this water and just getting my face in the mud to try to avoid all things hitting my head. So that was the first bad one that happened. I was nervous about the constrictor, which is just basically a black pipe and the pipe goes downhill for a little bit. And then as you go down, like it starts to fill up with water and then you have to go up a pipe. And so some of these are open air at the bottom with the water and some of them are not. And so I was just worried, just like this nervousness of drowning, basically that, oh my gosh, how much room am I going to have to breathe? Am I going to have to hold my breath in order to get up you know the next tube but it was actually open so it wasn't bad as I thought got to arctic enema this one I was really dreading for sure I so it's basically a dumpster right and it's supposed to have ice water in it and just ice and it's brought down to 32 degrees Fahrenheit zero degrees Celsius and so you know I'm told by all these people like you know you jump in you're going to go into shock like and so I'm just fearful of this like I just want to get through it just push through it. So I jump in and it was cold, but it wasn't as bad as I was uh, scared of. There weren't as many ice cubes floating around. So perhaps they didn't refill it from Saturday or this is just how it was, but I was thankful for that. And then you've got this uh, beam, this wooden beam in the center and you have to go underwater. So this is something that also makes me nervous, just the unknown because I can't see over this beam. And so I'm going underwater, not knowing how long I'm going to have to be under there, not knowing what I'm going to be jumping up into or pushing up into. So I go under and I'm coming up and already I'm starting to panic because there's some pressure. Like I can't go up easily as if I were in a pool. So there's some pressure. So I push up and man, you come up and you're in the ice. And as you get closer and closer to the side of this this dumpster more and more ice is happening so I am moving along in my head I'm just like just push through just push through just get out of here and it's just getting so thick and I can tell like my my limbs are just starting to freeze basically every part of my body was freezing and so I'm just moving and it's hard because it's just so solid uh someone helped me out of the tank and everything and then I when you know I climb out of the tank I see these people like waiting I guess for their teammates and everything and I I just wanted to stand or walk or whatever but I just knew like you need to start running Stella because you need to get blood flowing and when I started running I couldn't even tell like Basically, all I could tell was that my legs were moving, but I couldn't feel anything, but I just had to get that blood flowing. So wasn't as bad, but it certainly was uh, just a little nerve-wracking and, and getting out of there. But I think I was prepared for that, if only because I snowboard, so I'm used to that cold weather. Uh, monkey bars, they call it funky monkey. Um, 
I that was definitely I knew it was going to be a challenge for me. I'm pretty good on the, the monkey bars, I think, because my slow size, uh, my small size, and everything. It's angled up and then it's angled down, so you know it's tough to begin with. And then even going down is slightly tough because you don't want to go really quickly. You have to take your time. And I knew that there were they were either going to be slippery or they were going to spin as well the, the the bars so i was prepared for this you know wiping my hands off and everything and my trainer when i was still with him he told me you know the best way to do this is to really put your hands against the side of the bar cuz you know how well you know how you've got the bar and then the bar is attached into sort of the the beams and so put your hands on the very outside so that there's some stabilization there and that's totally what I did I made it up the very top one the peak of it uh, spun so once I first did it like I felt it spin and I'm like oh man uh, but then I went down without falling so I was very happy about that but I think that the crowning moment was really um, hold your wood and it involves basically carrying a very large piece of wood and you've got two options you've got a trunk that's cut to be maybe 18 inches it's probably like 18 inches by 18 inches and then that's width and height I don't thickness I mean it's probably like 18 by 18 by 18 even though it wasn't a square but it, it's definitely bigger than than a uh, than a foot and it's just like if you went out to your backyard and decided to cut a tree down this like chunk or what you could do is uh, have this longer piece and by long I mean it's about the size of a bar that you would use at the gym it's definitely thicker I would say that it weighs more than like a standard bar weighs 45 pounds so that's either like a tree limb or sort of like a birch tree sized trunk if that's what they did so you've got those two options one is definitely you know for like singles if you want you'd go with that one trunk or the other ones that I was just describing the longer ones that's like a partner log so you would have it on one shoulder and then a partner would have it behind it I in no way wanted that large um, trunk like the the fat trunk so I decided that I am just gonna do this partner bar but I'm gonna do it by myself so I hoist it up on one uh, shoulder and then I throw it around the back so basically um, sort of walking like Jesus did with his um, cross and and I'm walking along and you've got you know a half a mile at least uh, to do and let me just say that I had been working with this anyways my trainer made me carry a kettlebell that weighed 50 pounds on his shoulder for a half mile and then I started doing farmer walks with two 45 pound uh, plates around the track of the gym so I had been working up to this I knew this was coming so I'm walking there are men behind me and they're like oh man we should feel so ashamed which I can't turn around but uh, you know obviously they're like talking about me that I took two of them to carry this partner log and here I am nervous because it first starts going downhill um, and I'm just scared like oh I hope there it's not slippery because I need to maintain my traction so I don't fall with this heavy log so just coming along and people as they pass or you know giving me kudos and everything and then I make it back up because now I got to come back up the hill and as I'm reaching back 
to the pile of wood because I have to drop it off, you know, for the next person. Uh, one of the people at the Tough Mudder people is saying, oh, man, we've got a beast here. And uh, when I dropped it off, people started clapping me and, and giving me kudos and everything. So that was definitely like a really big moment for me, just like this small person um, being able to carry this thing that's meant for two people all by herself. And uh, it was it was tough. I'm not going to make it sound like it was really easy, but I'm just glad that I pushed through it. And I was happy that, you know, my training um, was able to, to come up to this moment. And even at the next water station, people congratulated me and said that was that was great. And, you know, I said, well... It was a partner log, but I didn't have a partner, so there wasn't anything else I could do. So that's just what you, you know, if you don't have a, a friend, you got to do something else. Uh, there was one awesome time, the the warrior crawl, where, um, I mean, a lot of the money that they make here goes to wounded warrior. And one big guy that was in the army, he carried a wounded warrior flag the entire uh, uh, challenge, the entire race. And this wounded warrior crawl, you have to carry somebody and then you're supposed to switch halfway. So I met like this guy is like 200 pounds, but it's like uh, the kingpin. It's, you know, basically all muscle sorts of stuff. And so like basically he's piggyback. And it was the easiest thing for him because I mean, basically, I don't I'd probably weigh like half of him. So he's carrying me and then this lady's like, Okay, you need to switch halfway and he's like, Don't worry about it. Um, so it was just it was just a great experience. Um, there were so many other obstacles that I could talk about that was a lot of fun. I would like to do it again. Um, cause yeah, it was fun. It was emotionally draining. Like I almost cried before the race even started and I almost cried after. So it is emotionally straining. Maybe that was just me. I don't know, but I've been working for like a year. So imagine working for a year, it being canceled once, then doing it again. Y it gets to you. So I would do it again, not in 2013, because I do think I need a break, but the next time I do it, I really want to do it with somebody, because I think it would just be a lot more fun to do it with somebody and, and be able to share that experience. So so I made it back. Thank you for your, your thoughts and prayers and your words of encouragement, and I recommend doing it, uh, just having fun. I mean, it's not about how well you finish, uh, and you can skip obstacles if you want, but it's just about having fun working together and finishing periods. So, so I do recommend it. Well, it is August, and that means it's the end of a summer of co-hosts, and I'm very happy to introduce my final co-host, Tom Penneris, and he's the host of Taking Flight, which is a podcast uh, really focusing on the Dick Grayson Robin, and he's the writer slash owner of Pop Culture Affidavit, which re really is a, a blog about all things pop culture. Hopefully that's a good way of describing it. So welcome, Tom. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This uh, I've been looking forward to doing this since we... Uh since you put out the word that you wanted some co-hosts because this is uh i've been listening to this to, to backyard oracle for not since the beginning probably about halfway through and i've always in, enjoyed it so this is this is this is a real treat well thank you so before we get started i do need to know are you a dick and starfire fan or are you a dick and babs fan <laughs> Because uh, I've been I've been listening to Taking Flight and, and I just I just need to know right off the I, bat. I I honestly <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't know. I think that 
in, in some regard, Dick and Babs is a better fit. I feel that like to the, 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 the Robin and Starfire thing, it's time had passed. You know, it, it annoys me now when, I'm sorry, before the new 52, it annoyed me when anyone would get the two back together because in my mind, like when they, when those two broke up, that was it. You know, they got closure and then, okay, but then like Judd Wainick or somebody would have them, you know, sleep together or whatever. And you're just like, no, they don't need to do this. Uh, but I came of age as a comics fan reading the old Wolfman Perez Titans. So it made, it makes a little more sense to me. Besides, I always thought that Barbara was a lot older than Dick was. Yeah. So, but, and, and on some level, Robin and Batgirl makes sense. Um, the only thing I ever get annoyed at is like when writers seem to, uh, when they, when they go back through kind of the history of the relationship between Robin and, and Batgirl of Dick and Babs, they seem to downplay his relationship with Corey mm-hmm. because they lived together. Like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't like a flash in a pan thing. So, um, funny enough, uh, I, I'm, I'm for those of those of your listeners who who've never heard me before. I'm an English teacher, and I actually, in one of my advanced English t- classes, have taught who is Donna Troy. As a, because it's it fits into a, a whole series of stories I do about family, and my students last year, and I knew you appreciate this being that you love the whole shipping thing. Yeah. We're wondering, and I, I had no other answer. I had, the, I came up with the best answer I could f- for this. They were like, they were wondering why Robin wasn't with Wonder Girl. For the first, they were wondering why the hell Robin would be with Terry Long. I mean, not Robin, Donna would be with Terry Long. <laughs> and I was like, I, I have no explanation for Terry Long. But I, I, I said that Donna Troy is Dick Grayson's like best girlfriend that Mm -hmm. they would never get together because they wouldn't want to ruin their friendship. If you've ever had that, (laughs) because I've had that friend before and you're like, yeah, it would be too weird. Um, I think I was telling Mike Bailey or somebody that I always pictured Dick Grayson kissing Donna Troy and her reacting like Lorraine does in back to the future when she kisses Marty and she says, for a minute there, I felt like I was kissing my brother. But so, um, but to get back to your original question, you'll find I ramble a lot. I would probably say Starfire because I have more um, experience with that. But I don't mind him with Batgirl, uh, just not with the Huntress. So there's f- a little bit of a <laughs> there's a little bit of a problem with the call. Looks like I dropped Tom since. Uh, he- answer no joking joking <laughs> oh bleep that <laughs> i will yeah uh no i was hoping for the uh the other answer of course but i figured i would get the starfire just because i yeah. knew from listening to your your podcast that you are um a big teen titans fan so i knew that was coming i remember picking up a couple issues of the most recent titans run i guess it'd be volume two i can't recall uh-uh. who was 
But I feel like it was maybe it was a very low number, and they had like Dick and Starfire in a whirlpool or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they're already putting them back together after yeah. so recent a thing. So I just could never get on board with that. I totally see what you're saying about this huge age difference between Dick and Babs. Yeah. And now every time when they retell it, besides throwing Starfire out, which I guess there's not even been a relationship now in the new 52, yeah. they always seem to pull that age difference uh, together more. So before it was like six or seven years, but now it seems like, hey, it could be three or four. So, Well, the funny thing is it depends on the writer, too, because Chuck yeah. Dixon did a great job, and, and the relationship between the him and Babs is great. So there was I was never – it never struck me as odd. But then you have um, – I'm thinking of like Nightwing Annual 2, which is just this kind of weird retconning and shoehorning of things yes, in there. And yes. it's just it, – it doesn't make you hate. It makes you hate like both relationships. You're just like, what is going on here? Yeah, some really bad decisions. Yes. <laughs> well, Tom mentioned that he's a teacher, and it's really funny because we we have a lot in common, though we've never met. <laughs> we live in the same town. We're both teachers, and even pre-podcast recording, I just found out that uh, his son is that right? Your son? Yeah. Your son is going to, uh, into first grade at my school. So it's very interesting. We have all these connections we have yet to meet. I think it's probably bound to happen at some point though. Probably, (laughs) probably. So to back up even farther, what is your history with, uh, comics and, with Batgirl, because I know you're you're more of a Teen Titans and Robin fan. Um, how do, have you any experience with Batgirl way back when? I I was trying to remember the first time I saw Batgirl in anything, and it 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 might have been in a comic that I randomly picked up at like a drugstore or something or a stationery store when I was a little kid. Um, because I was born in 1977, uh, and so when I was growing up, I was watching the Super Friends and Scooby-Doo when, when Batman was on Scooby-Doo from time to time. And uh, I know Batgirl really didn't make any appearances, but I always knew who Batgirl was. And I, like I said, I, and I, I remember seeing her on the Adam West TV show when they would rerun that. Um, every one, every few years, they they kind of dig it out of the mothballs and rerun it in syndication. Uh, and I, but I remember, I, I distinctly remember, maybe it was just merchandising with the classic uh, blue cape and grayish costume and the yellow boots and what have you. And the first comic I ever really remember, believe it or not, it was like it was Crisis on Infinite Earths. Which was one of the first comics I ever like, was one of the comics that kind of got me into the whole idea of collecting for like continuity's sake. Because somebody gave me a copy of one of the issues, and I was like hooked on the series. Went back and bought the series. Um, this was back in like 1990, so I hunted down the back issues. And she is in it's issue four and issue seven. She has kind of significant appearances where to do that surrounds her relationship with uh, Kara. Supergirl. Mm-hmm. She speaks at her funeral too. Yeah. And um, so I've always kind of known, um, you know, that Batgirl was, uh, you know, who Batgirl was. I started collecting, I had like two kind of little, <laughs> I started technically, I guess you could say I started collecting comics in 1990 because in 1990 I, st- I picked up my first issue of Batman and Detective 
and along with it, Titans, because my friend said, you know, my friend told me who Nightwing was, and I knew who Dick Grayson was because I had been watching, I knew who Robin was from you know, years of knowing who Batman and Robin were. And he said, well, he's not Robin anymore. He's Nightwing. And he explained, I, I had read, he loaned me, my friend loaned me Death in the Family. And, you know, one thing led to another. So I started reading Batman Detective uh, and Titans. And then this was right around the time that Tim Drake was introduced uh, to the Robin costume. It was, the, I think the second issue of Detective I bought was the issue where his parents' plane went down. So I was into you know, the whole idea of a new Robin, like right from the get go. Um, but I actually had been buying comics here and there prior to that. I went through a stint back when I was like in the fourth or fifth grade of buying GI Joe and the transformers because everybody in the fourth and fifth grade, when I was a kid bought the GI Joe and transformers comics. Uh, and I would occasionally pick up a Superman or a Batman or a Spider-Man and, and things like that. But it, um, I have a little bit of experience with, with some of the Batgirl stuff here and there. Um, I read some of the Stephanie Brown series uh, when I could remember to pick it up. Uh, I liked the character of Cass Kane when I saw her in the main Bat titles, but I never read her, um, her, her own solo title. And I was reading the current iteration of Batgirl, and I think I dropped it with issue zero or issue 13 or so okay. uh, because I just I, I the only thing about the new 52 that I've actually liked is how easy it is to pick up and drop titles <laughs> and back back girl kind of Nightwing's kind of on its way out, actually, which is kind of sad because I've been reading Nightwing for years and. It's just not I, I don't hate the title and I didn't hate Batgirl. I just wasn't doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing comics kind of on a budget, you're like, all right, what do I really, really want to read and what do I not want to read? And they've I mean, I actually the 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 ugh, the issue that we're talking about tonight, I actually liked quite a bit. Uh it's the first Batgirl story I've read in about you know, almost a year and, and I really enjoyed it. So I might, you know, kind of see where that's going, but, uh, but yeah, so I've been kind of on the periphery of, as far as Batgirl is concerned, never liked the killing joke for several reasons. And one of it being what happens to Barbara, but I always loved Oracle, the character. Yeah. And I always loved what, um, as far back as the suicide squad. Um, and, and I, and I thought if you're, going to rescue a character from from that that was a really really cool thing to do and i loved how strong of a character she became as as oracle and uh i i also have a soft spot in my heart for stephanie brown because i liked her the minute i saw her as like the spoiler so and i wish they'd bring her back somehow into the new 52 but i know that's a sore spot uh, <laughs> for, yeah, i read enough comics blogs to know how much of a sore spot Seth stephanie brown is <laughs> yeah, and there are so many people that are missing from this new universe. And Donna Troy is one person that I really recently, like in the last five years, started to connect to and really enjoy that character. And of course, Wally West, I know, is a big thing for many people. And of course, Stephanie Brown and Cass Kane, you just wonder where these uh, where these people have gone. I know. I'm, I'm annoyed about the Wally West thing because... I started, there was a period, I read all of Mark Wade's run on The Flash back in the early 1990s and loved it. 
and really came to like that character as the Flash. But then again, I didn't have much experience with Barry Allen. The first Barry Allen story I read mm-hmm. was his death. So, but but I know I do. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that's my kind of long-winded origin of comics. I've been more or less collecting comics on and off for mostly on for about 23, 24 years now and uh, have been podcasting for about a year. So... <laughs> A little late to the game on the podcasting thing, but I uh, have listened to hours and hours and hours and hours of podcasts since I started listening to them a few years ago. So, And that's made it a lot more fun, too, I will say. Yeah. So your podcast, currently you call it a mini-series. Is there any yeah. um, plans to expand it and, and continue with it? Um, I'm actually I'm wrapping it up with the next episode. What? And, yeah. <laughs> and May... I'm, I, I, you know, I, uh, behind the scenes, I told Dustin that's going to be the last episode. And then I was planning on taking a little break and I just, I've been, I was trying to get some material together for future episodes, but I, I really couldn't get anything that I really wanted. I, I, I had access to material, but I wasn't really liking what I was putting together. And so, I mean, who knows? I, you, you really can't say never again to anything Mm -hmm. and for all i know when when you know as i go through the first few months of the school year and then you know things get my rhythm and things start to you know shake out where my schedule is concerned uh i might actually turn around and say hey you know what i might want to do pick this up again so and he's graciously agreed to just kind of keep the feet up until um, i'm ready to come back but uh but if if i do it's going to be still talking about robin but slightly different format in that I probably won't go doing be doing things like specifically chronologically through stories. I might kind of jump around and stuff so that I can have a little more fun with it. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, I'm taking, I'm actually, I have, cause I actually have two other podcasts and they both have quite a number of episodes in the can right now because I knew the beginning of the school year was coming up and you know, you, you know, as well as I do, that can be just, I came home and crashed today. I was like, yeah. I sat on the couch. And I was just like, I'm going to close my eyes for half an hour. And it yeah. wasn't a tough day. It's just, it was the first day of classes. And I was like, I, I need a break. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's every so, type of exhausting. I mean, it's like emotional yeah. and physical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's everything. So even when well, it's good, <laughs> that's the yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very true. And almost like the good days are the ones that wear you out the most. So, mm-hmm. and I deal with middle schoolers, so I have to be like high energy practically all day. <laughs> and mm-hmm. by the end of the day, it's, it's rough. It's just like dragging. And someone made a comment from the high school at a meeting, just like the change in my attitude, like from the beginning, like all peppy. And then like, <laughs> he saw me come into this afternoon meeting. He's like, you can tell there's a difference. So it's just, they, they're like little vampires. They suck out all the energy from you. I, it's tough. I teach uh, sophomores. It's not that much of a difference. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Especially the boys. Oh, man. Yeah. They can drive you crazy. But yeah, so I mean, so let's just say it's on a, it's on a long hiatus right now. And, okay. And, and I will eventually bring it back because I, like I said, I had some ideas, but I was trying to like, all right, I'm going to go ahead and start doing the next phase of it. And I think I was just starting to get burned out. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. On. Cool. I, I definitely recommend listening to that podcast, and I really enjoyed yeah. the uh, 
the Judas Contract episode. The oh, really? Episode. Yeah, and I've actually never read Judas Contract. I've seen it, you know, on Teen Titans, mm-hmm. and I've searched for the trade paperback, but to no avail mm-hmm. yet, so I'm still on the lookout for that, but yes. If you're going to do it, I actually recommend getting, there's a trade before that, and I don't know what's in print and what's not. There's a trade before it called, it's like Terra Incognito, Mm-hmm. which is most of the um, the lead-up stuff, so starting with the introduction of Terra all the way up to where the Judas contract would pick up. And if you read that all together as one thing, you get a fuller story out of it because they introduce Terra in... She has a brief cameo in, like, issues 26 and 27 of Teen Titans, New Teen mm-hmm. Titans, but her first, like, real... Uh, issue is issue 28 and the Judas contract is issues uh, the four parts of the Judas contract are issues 42, 43, 44 and the third annual so it's it truly it's a two year story where there's you know there's Wolfman and Perez were good at having this long story arc but each issue having its sort of core action, like, you know, here comes the villain, we're going to fight the villain, and the, the terror thing is below the surface for a while. But it, it, but it, it really is a, is a richer story if you're, if you're going back to 28 and, and what have you. Um, even if you actually go back all the way from the beginning of the title and read it up there, it, it really is, you feel like there's like kind of a culmination of stuff going on. But for the, for the short term, I would, I would t- track that down as well. So, yeah, I was lucky when I was a kid because I I started with the Titans hunt uh, because that was the first issue I bought was 71 of New Titans, which was when the Wildebeest kidnapped them all. And then we got into what was we started going down the 90s Titans path. But at the time, nobody was buying back issues of New Teen Titans. So I was picking up these issues for like a dollar fifty two dollars a piece at a time when like. If it had an X in the title, it would run you at least three or four, or maybe five dollars, especially if Jim Lee was the artist. And so I bought most of that run for about a dollar fifty-two dollars an issue, you know, during the early '90s when everybody was overpricing back issues for everything. Yeah, so I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, final question before we actually get into the reviews. Have you seen Man of Steel or and or, I guess, uh, The Wolverine? And what did you think of them? Have not seen The Wolverine. Okay. I'm going to wait for the video on that one. Um, have seen Man of Steel. Actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, I agree. Walked out of there really, really liking it. Um, I was actually talking to a student about this the other day because he was asking me what I thought. And... I thought that there were parts where there could have been a, a few times here and there was like you could have added a little, where Zack Snyder was a little heavy handed, and and I thought here they're like okay maybe the maybe the end maybe the ending action thing went on a little too long at times, but overall but that's like nitpicky mm-hmm. like any criticisms I have of that movie are nitpicks. Um, I really really enjoyed it um, and. I think part of the reason I really enjoyed it was I kind of stayed away from a lot of the internet surrounding the movie. Yeah. Because I didn't want to get my expectations too high. Yeah. And then I didn't want, then, and I didn't get a chance to see the movie until, um, no, it was opening weekend. It was an opening night. It was like opening day or something. Um, 
and I kind of stayed away from from the from the internet talk about it after I'd seen it for at least a few days to let it kind of sit in because you know the internet can be <laughs> crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I know I really really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with a sequel. Um, I'm going to steer clear of any hype surrounding Superman and Batman until they actually get a trailer out. And, yeah. I'm a little disappointed that they're bringing Batman on. Uh, just, yeah. I feel like, you know, I think Superman deserves his own separate franchise, and they've tried to make this movie for so long, because I remember it even having, like, a, a poster in, what is that? I Am Legend? The vampire, yes. Mm-hmm. Remember, there's, like, this billboard. I don't know if you remember that detail, but when he's driving through New York City, you see that billboard. But this is the room for so that. long. Yeah. But I just think it'd be awesome to explore the mythos that is Superman rather mm-hmm. than complicating everything and let's yeah. bring out Batman and now it's going to be their interaction. I, I just feel like there's so much that they could do that hasn't been done with Superman yet. Yeah, the, because the, this was – I felt Man of Steel was a great setup. Exactly. And that your sequel, you've – at the end of the movie, for lack of – I don't know if this is a spoiler, they've established the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I liked how at the end of the movie it's, you know, okay, Clark Kent, Daily Planet, go. And there's your sequel. And you can you can do – you can bring in – different villains than you don't wouldn't have to have luther i could see somebody like a brainiac or parasite yeah. or something that has yeah. a little muscle to him and i and you know it might be an interesting movie but at the same time i'm like do we i i'm not a big fan of like oh who's gonna win in a fight type of discussions superman or batman because i don't really care yeah <laughs> i want to see superman and batman team up to fight you know Whoever they have to fight. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't last too long. Yeah, well, let, um, let's see if they ever get the Wonder Woman movie off the ground. Oh, yeah. gosh. So. Yeah, I'm so concerned about that. We'll never really have a good female-led uh, movie. Well, I, I thought, you know, this goes back months ago and on listening to Comics Monthly Monday. I think I wrote in about it. They were asking if you were going to do have DC do kind of a second tier of movies for superheroes where they're not doing like the big justice league characters, but they're doing kind of slightly lower budget movies with superheroes, you know, on the level of something like a blade or whatever. I had thought Batwoman would be in the current iteration of Batwoman would be an excellent, excellent film because you have those noir elements, and the supernatural elements. You have a really great character in Kate Kane. I don't know if they'd ever do it though. Yeah, I agree, and I love that character. Do you think it'd be hard to sell her because she is a gay character, or do you think it would be? I think um, that would be hard. They wouldn't even deal with that on the movie. I think if they didn't deal with it, they would uh, they would get so much flack for not dealing with it. Yeah, and if they did, it's a it's a catch twenty two. Yeah, one of my favorite. I, I love the relationship between uh, Kate and Maggie, and, and that would be mm-hmm. a good way to tie into Superman, actually, since yeah. Maggie used to work for Metro- Metropolis PD. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I would love to see on the Marvel side. I I still really want to see an Iron Fist movie, mm-hmm. and you could always double it up and and do Luke Cage and Iron <laughs> Fist, and of course bring in Jewel if you really had to. But yeah. there's so so many awesome characters that. Yeah, I just think they need to they need to get something going. But I guess we'll yeah. see. 
see how the Marvel's doing all right with the with the Avengers stuff, but yeah, they could yeah. they could they could use some ancillary mm-hmm. characters and what have you. I'm kind of curious as how they're going to do this Days of Future Past movie. Is um, like I said, I'm not I'm not setting my expectations high because I Batman Forever burned me on that. So I've always set my expectations low for a superhero movie ever since that. But. <laughs> I'm old and grizzled and cynical when it comes to superhero movies, but, yeah. but I, between Batman Forever and Superman Returns, uh, <laughs> which I didn't hate, I have it on DVD. I really enjoy. Yeah. I just, you know, I have the same. I, I Michael Bailey's way more of a Superman fan than really any of us, but but right. than I am. But I, when I listen to him talk about that movie, I actually have the same <laughs> thoughts, you know, where his criticisms are the same thing and, and what have you. So. But yeah, I'm, I I enjoyed Man of Steel a lot. I I deliberately there are certain movies that I deliberately wait for the video for because I don't usually get to the movies as often as I want to. Uh, Iron Man three was one of them, and, and the Wolverine was the other. Especially after the reviews started rolling in, and I was like, all right, well maybe I'll just wait for it to come out and and rent it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but by the oh the the car mic. Yeah, it's a dollar fifty. Hmm. Okay, they they started doing. Oh, that's right. They went to second run. The, they went to second yeah, run. Yeah. So like right now, Man of Steel is uh, in there. Iron Man three is in there. So I don't know if that get like. I mean, paying a dollar fifty. That's just like. Yeah, that's that's nothing at this point. It'd be a matter yeah. of finding the time. Yeah. So, yeah. so just so you know about that, and to be honest, the Wolverine was awesome. It, oh, it wasn't, was. You know, I enjoyed uh, Wolverine X-Men Origins. I, mm-hmm. It's definitely not, like, the best movie, and there are obviously flaws. But the Wolverine, I they just captured his time in Japan so well. And there's actually a tease at the very end for Days of Future Past, which, oh, cool. which starts to get me excited about it. But even if you do wait for, you know, the DVD, uh, mm-hmm. I think... Well, I, I guess I don't want to get your expectations <laughs> up, but I, I think that you'll enjoy it. And if it comes to dollar fifty, I'd I'd love to see that again. That'd be great. But cool, you know, I I I looked at that commercials and, and trailers and stuff, and I didn't see some sort of like something. On, I didn't think I was going to see something with with Wolverine. I was like, this isn't going to be the Avengers. It looked like it might be a good solid action movie, which which has been a rarity in recent years. Uh, you know, something that's just kind of, cause I, my, my cut my movie going teeth on like Schwarzenegger films. Oh yeah. So I saw commando when I was like 10. So I've seen, you know, and then that was one of the, the ways I bonded with my dad is the two of us would always go to act. We would go to the movies all the time with me and my friends and stuff. And so we've had like, I mean, I've this, those really bad Steven Seagal movies from like '91 or '92 that they rerun sometimes on cable. I saw them in the theater. So, but but like some of them are some movies like that are just really good popcorn action movies, and that's kind of what it looked like. So I was like, all right, but if I have the time and it comes to the car mic for a buck fifty, I'm like, I would definitely go see it. So okay, well, right. without further ado, uh, yeah, we'll get into the reviews. And we're gonna have a I don't I don't think we can go on a, a fan favorite but a repeat villain, uh, Voodoo Returns. Uh, so first up we have Detective Comics 501, the fivefold revenge of Doctor Voodoo, and the cover date was or is April 1981. Writer Carrie Burkett, artist Jose Delbo, inker Joe Giella, letterer John Costanza, and colorist Jean D'Angelo. 
Also included in this issue is The Man Who Killed Mademoiselle Marie featuring Batman. So Voodoo and Ancient Master are making some gumbo for a cookout, and Batgirl is invited. Uh, Actually, Voodoo has been following Batgirl for days. He's been stalking her on Facebook and gaining a piece of her costume and strands of her hair to make a lifelike voodoo doll who hasn't wanted to do that for one of their students. The master said that they have been thwarted. However, the spell broken before it reached its target because Batgirl is protected by a powerful Loa, which is a spirit, since she is a servant of the law and she cannot be harmed by a direct attack from the gods of chaos. Voodoo starts getting upset because he was defeated by her and the Dark Gods took away his soul-stealing powers. He cannot get them back until she's sacrificed to them. So the Master tells him to simmer down, saying that there are other ways, namely wearing down her resistance by attacking her emotions. So she must be brought to feel guilt, hatred, fear, doubt the love of someone close to her, and then these will all culminate to bring her to the edge of despair. After she is weakened, they can seize her soul and sacrifice that for the dark gods. Later, Voodoo is running around Jeff's service station after planting a bomb in Batgirl's motorcycle. Voodoo gives Jeff the impulse to rev the cycle to, for some reason, check it, and when he does, it explodes. The next morning at Babs's job at HRD, Babs forgives Doreen and calls her friend again, but okay. Uh, even though someone who tries to frame you is not a friend. When Gordon calls Barbara and tells her about the accident with Jeff. He's alive but in critical condition, and since the bomb was meant for her, Babs feels guilt. At the scene, Babs finds a tooth from Voodoo's headdress and yells, God! Uh, and so this is hate, of course. Back with Sanford and Son, the master feels a difference already and then says he has had a vision of a man with some sort of link to Batgirl. Batgirl returns from her patrol to find Voodoo and calls Jim, not wanting to be alone. Jim can't come over because he has to finish a brief and don't try to get me whipped, woman. Doubt. Babs wonders how Jim could be so cruel, and Jim wonders the same, as we see a needle sticking out of the head of a facsimile Jim doll. Jim calls her back, but she's already left. Voodoo, once again stalking Batgirl, jumps on her line, snapping it. They both fall. While disoriented, Batgirl fights back, getting some hits in before Voodoo throws her WWE style. Uh, Then injects the unconscious Batgirl with the drug that will heighten all the painful emotions she's now prey to, hopefully break her resistance and cause her to beg for the dark gods to take her soul. To be continued. Wow. So is this your first experience with Dr. Voodoo? Yeah. And (laughs) wow. Um, (laughs) What what an experience. Does he know she's back? Does he know who she is? Like, I don't does he think know, so. Okay, so she doesn't know who Barbara Gordon, like the connection no, between Barbara Gordon. No, but it's, it's such a point, I mean, that he's following her around that you yeah. wonder how could he not know. Yeah. But um, all the, yeah, all the other things, it doesn't seem like it. I've never been a fan of voodoo villains, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, uh, and, I mean, at least, I, I can't, it, it, the advantage of the way this is written is I came into this more or less cold. I've been I've been listening to the previous episodes of the show so i knew about the barbara gordon uh murderer mm-hmm. storyline and all that but at the same time i hadn't read any of that so i still didn't feel lost as a result you know i, I kind of i do i just have to say that i like that because there are some comics especially nowadays where you pick up a random issue and 
you have no idea what's going on. Right. Yeah. At least here you have an entry point. Uh, the artwork is is pretty solid. I have to say the problem with this story is that it and the, and the next issue, the the two parts, it's really overshadowed by the main story in Detective because I read that anyway because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this looks like a cool Batman story, which is has which is an amazing story. Um, so this 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 isn't as forgetful as say like a nemesis backup from something like you know or green arrow backup from like down the road but it's it's uh but it definitely you know you definitely remember the other story and the and, and the issue a little bit better um looking at this uh yeah dr voodoo is like control your emotions man is it's just like voodoo steroid freak or something. Yeah. It's, just, it's this sort of like rawr <laughs> Hulk smash. <laughs> Cause I can't take her soul. Um, let's see on uh, the, the idea of getting at somebody's friends is a good one. Voodoo right. or no voodoo. I mean, that's, yep. that's a great trope. I get your point about how I would, not exactly forgive somebody who framed me for murder either. <laughs> yeah, and I still I don't know how Doreen is not in jail. Uh, she <laughs> explains that she did turn state's evidence, but I feel like that doesn't get you off Scott's free, and you always have to still pay the piper a little bit. But yeah, I know. And she's it, back at the same job, I know, which is like a like, government job. <laughs> nothing ever happened. I Let's know. forget all this happened. Yeah. Do do do. Um. <laughs> Let's see, turning the page. Hey, seven muscles in seven days. Okay. Um, page six. You nailed it with, with Khan. Yes. <laughs> Do you hear me, Voodoo? You will pay. Like, really? Yeah. I mean, it's a tad dramatic there. I mean, it's it's very, very over the top. Um, and I love on page, uh, that was page five, on page six, where she goes into her apartment and everything. And I love how, um, I guess this is, this is 30 years ago, so I don't know what apartment buildings were built like then, but how convenient that she has an apartment building that the windows open like that, as opposed to like some apartments that I, that I had in the past where like, you know, good luck getting the windows to fit through a window. Or yeah. And, and the panel of Jeff, is it Jeff or is that Jim? Jim. Yeah. Sitting on the couch uh, in his very stylish open collar shirt there. It looks like a, this couple of panels is almost very Kurt Swan looking uh, for just a split second. His face looks like a Kurt Swan, uh, Kurt Swan drawing, which is probably just unintentional, but I was just like, Hey, wait, that looks like a, at the couch, the color scheme of the couch is very like uh, Clark Kent's apartment that, ugly green color with the brown walls and everything so it just it looked like a panel out of a superman comic um even though it probably wasn't intended but i think it's a decent setup i mean if you're going for a two-part story you have a villain who is you know uh the voodoo thing aside it could have been it would have been interesting just to have him go after her friends uh in that way voodoo or no voodoo uh but you have a you have a good cliffhanger i mean you have a nice really isn't much of a well yeah and she gets a couple of shots in before he you're right he just suplexes her or whatever that move is that looks like it hurt too (laughs) she's out cold yeah Uh, but yeah so but no it's it's a it's a pretty solid setup for the story and it does make you want to read the next um the next part 
Yeah. The return of Dr. Voodoo. I just wonder <laughs> how many people were clamoring for this. And I sort of knew it was going to happen because the previous issue that he was in, you know, he ran off and she didn't mm-hmm. run after him. So I knew he had to be coming back at some point. But I am just surprised that with all these personal effects that he has collected, that Batgirl has somehow not noticed him following her. <laughs> That's one of the questions I would I mean, hair? And all this other stuff, and the fact that he probably doesn't know that she's Barbara Gordon, which I just think is impossible, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem like he does. He does remind me of, well, this whole thing I've been going through on Amazon Instant Video, Mm -hmm. if you're a Prime member. uh, All the Bond films through August are free, so I've been like... Uh, watching them and I'm in the Moore era which I don't really like Moore as Bond but live and let die live and let die all this sort of comes at me Mm -hmm. as live and let die it's it's very live and let die you're right (laughs) but he he also reminded me of a villain in Batman Beyond who was a voodoo sort of hunter named Stalker S-T-A-L-K-E-R uh, okay. So I just got a lot of that vibe. I wondered who the master was because we see him. We see him in this issue and the next one, but we don't really get an idea of who this guy is except that he's the master and he knows more things than Dr. Voodoo does. So I'm a little disappointed about that because it could be interesting learning more about him. I guess I, I wonder how the master created a voodoo doll of Jim if he only saw like this blurry vision and sensed that there was a man in in her life how did he get these specifics and don't you need some sort of personal artifact to attach to a voodoo doll in order to yeah. properly because we don't see anybody else working for him right it's not like right, they've got no. like you know doctor voodoo and you know voodoo's hygienist assistant <laughs> yeah uh, you no. know, go out and collect the stuff igor Exactly. Yeah. Abby Normal. Um, throwing a young Frankenstein reference there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like we don't have like somebody he sends out to, to, or he doesn't even explain. You know, I had, right. you were trailing her and I had him, you know, or I had you collect things from her friends. And yeah, you're right. It, they could have, it could have been explained away in like two sentences how, yeah. how he knew who all these people were. And I guess that's just the the trouble that this is really the backup to the main story because she only gets 10 pages out of the Mm -hmm. whole book. And so I guess they do have to sacrifice some plot points and everything. I mean, even the beginning, it's just like they're right in the middle of everything. You don't do a backflash of who this voodoo guy is or anything. So that's that's the unfortunate part. What would you give it out of 10 if you were to grade it? Um, As a setup, I'd say about... Like a seven and a half or so. Okay. Um, based on the the rest of it, you know, it does. I would say that it um, over the course of this, I would say it get to preview what the next chapter is. It does get better mm-hmm. from there. I mean, so but yeah, it was a, it was a halfway decent setup. Yeah, I'm gonna just pull it down a half and give it mm-hmm. seven out of ten. I, I think it's a devious and powerful plan, but there are a lot of things that muddy it. Like I don't know why she needs to be injected with some sort of drug when they're already <laughs> like they're already fulfilling what they need to do with with all the mystic mumbo jumbo. So then all of a sudden we've got some science thrown in as well. So it, it just seems like it, it's really good. It's a good idea, but there are some things that are messing it up. So seven out of 10 for me. And he reminds me of a character from the Teen Titans uh, that I think actually comes up later from the Brotherhood of Evil called like Hoongan. 
who is a voodoo character who does something, but it also involves computers. I never exactly, long story short, in the middle of a battle, he could hit like his little kind of cyber voodoo doll and, and cyborg's leg would start to hurt or something oh dear. or whatever. It was the brotherhood of evil was a, was a halfway decent concept that Wolfman and Paris created. And they had Hungan was probably the weak link in that because they had phobia, which was a good foil for Raven uh, warp, which was just think of an evil version of nightcrawler. Uh, it looked completely different than Nightcrawler, but had the same kind of transporting powers. But then you have like Plasmus and and Brain and Mala, who were um, who were left over from the Doom Patrol days, and, and th- that was an interesting group of villains, uh, better than say like Doctor Light and the Fearsome Five, which were always kind of a little goofy. But yeah, Hungan was always the weak link in that because it was like, here's Voodoo Man, and you're like, all right. So <laughs> again, maybe it's just my prejudice against Voodoo powered villains just not a thing that i particularly enjoy should we move on to detective 502 sure i'm ready for that all right so detective 502 i believe came up the next uh the next month and uh we have a story written by carrie burkett drawn by jose delbo and Joe Giella, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Gene D'Angelo, edited by Paul Levitz, who, by the way, I meant to point this out, uh, apparently had the spark plug company, uh, if you look on the, the wall of the garage. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they do like to do that, yep. yeah. Which cracks me up because there is a actual store up in the New York area called Levitz Furniture. Mm-hmm. So every time I see Paul Levitz's name on something, I kind of get a flash of Levitz Furniture commercials. Anyway... Twisted images writhe to a pulsing rhythm, mocking and accusing, spewing poisons of guilt and self-condemnation into Batgirl's already wounded mind. And though the dark night damsel will escape this hideous experience when she awakens, the damage will already have been accomplished, and Batgirl will learn what it is to live a nightmare. The splash page shows Barbara Gordon lying unconscious on the ground while the phantom images of all of her friends and the full-color image of Dr. Voodoo hover over her. And her friends are all like kind of looking at her either in horror or in or they're angry. It's kind of a cross between the two, in agony, horror, and anguish, and what have you. Turning the page, we see Barbara wake up and that she realizes, no, she didn't, she did not kill Jeff. Uh, She had a dream that she did. She then recaps the events of the previous issue in her thoughts, and she decides that she has to get off the roof of the building where she has had passed out. Dr. Voodoo at this point is nowhere to be seen. In fact, he's elsewhere. He and the master talk about how their spells are weakening their enemy, and that soon they will be able to seize her soul as a sacrifice to the dark gods, which will appease them and return his mind control powers. But first... They have to go after a blonde girl who has a strong connection to Barbara. Sometime later, a very haggard Barbara Gordon limps wearily into the offices of Humanities Research and Development. Bob Barton gives her grief for showing up late, and Babs, well, she slaps him. And I would, too. Because <laughs> he's kind of like Steve Lombard-ish. Anyway, she storms away, wondering what's wrong with her. But in all honesty, like I said, the guy had it coming. A moment later, her boss, Mr. Stein, calls her into his office and says that while he'd normally let her take a few days off to collect herself, what with the stress of her recent trial and what happened to Jeff and all, well, he needs her to 
complete that safety report as soon as possible. And don't forget to put the cover sheet on the TPS report. Okay. Um, Barbara heads to her office and rushes into a ringing phone. It's her father. He tells her that he needs Batgirl at police headquarters, where he tells her that Dr. Voodoo has sent a message that Tracy Dover has been kidnapped. It's obviously a trap set for Batgirl. Tracy's the bait. Dr. Voodoo offers to release Tracy if Batgirl comes alone to a certain area of town. Jim tries to get Barbara not to go, but she insists and she basically says, you know, pray for me. A short while later, Batgirl walks through said part of town. And just as he said, Dr. Voodoo is there and he has Tracy. She's try- he's trying to lure her into a house, which will serve as a temple of sacrifice for her soul. She goes inside and sees a skull on a stake and is very afraid, especially as it seems to morph between images of herself, Jeff, and other familiar faces. She kicks the glowing skull aside and tells herself that she won't be frightened. As she heads upstairs, Dr. Voodoo is waiting for her and decides to pounce. Barbara is significantly less afraid than Dr. Voodoo had thought she would be. And in the span of a few panels, she smacks him around, slams him into a wall, breaks his mask, and exposes his scarred face and his one blind eye. He curses her for destroying his symbolic meek link with the dark gods and as he pleads for the forces of darkness to come back Barbara kicks him down the stairs and thinks about how much better she is now at overcoming her fears so she finds Tracy and is relieved to find that she is alright and that is the end yay Yay! <laughs> everybody's fine I, I have to tell you I don't know who Tracy is Tracy is a little girl that thought she saw Batgirl get thrown off the side of a building and be hanged. And it while she was held at gunpoint by this guy known as the Comorant. And so she was like paralyzed emotionally and physically because of this and she didn't talk or anything. And so Babs connected with her emotionally to try to fix everything. And Jim is her father. So that's how Jim and Babs started, quote, dating. Okay. Because she had been over to their house so many times. Okay. Cool. Well, that that makes sense. I actually like the splash page. It's very, it's, this is going to sound stupid. It's a very comic booky looking splash page that's mm-hmm. sort of everybody's like the best kind yeah yeah it's just one of those okay it's it's that sort of secondary cover one that you would see for years and years and years in like the silver and bronze ages and considering there's no cover to this because the cover to the book is the batman right. story yep. this this is actually a really good good cover splash this time around uh, you know at least here we're we're getting again they're they're once again they've got all like you said if you ignore how the heck did they get all of these you know find out all of this information get all these things that they need to to drive her crazy mm-hmm. the things work and and it is working i like how we get a recap of the entire last story and we also get the sort of emotional breakdown on some level that she's going through within just a couple of panels it's a really good recap and it doesn't intru- it doesn't interrupt the story whereas some sometimes you'd have of the around this time you would have the recap in the story like death in the family is the worst at this if you've ever read actually the actual four issues of death in the family yes yeah there is he starlin like recaps every issue at the beginning and it's mm-hmm. like two pages of stuff and i'm like jim i just read this um <laughs> Yeah. You know, and he does it. He does it to the point where it kind of interrupts the story. Here, she just does it in thought bubbles, and uh, and it's really good. And like I said, this I'm glad she slapped this guy. Yeah, uh, I I agree with you there. Yeah, and and it's like, 
And the boss, she said, a slapped her boss like, yeah, yeah, you are just framed for murder, and you know your your friend is there's something wrong with him, and your other friend was almost killed, and I, normally I'd say, hey, you know, go home, rest, but I need that report. Can you do the paperwork for you? Like, what? <laughs> you know. But then again. She, that she, I don't think she actually ever does the report. <laughs> she, no. leaves, she leaves right after. I've always liked her interacting with her father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I've always liked um, how he is. He's a father, yet he's supportive at the same time. And mm-hmm. he, I never got the feeling, at least in these two stories, that that Jim was ever being condescending or, you know in any way <laughs> putting her down for, for Batgirl, you know, yeah. for being Batgirl. And, and uh, that's something, yeah, that relationship is sorely lacking in New 52, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the fight, the fight at the end's good. Uh, it's a, it's in a Scooby-Doo house. Yeah. It is very much a Scooby-Doo house. This is... Yeah, with all the stuff popping up. Yeah, yeah. Stuff popping up and it's in a creepy part of town and like, you know, Okay, taking the girl hostage. Now that you pointed out who she is, it makes total sense. Yeah. And um, the effect with the skull and everything. Again, we're going to play like mind games and that classic trope of, no, I've got to think this through. I've, it's almost like the Hall of Mirrors trick. I've got to find the real one and punch the real one. And I, once I punch through that, every other mirror shatter and it's you and me now. And we're going right. to take this out. And I, I like how they did that. And I like, I like the, the action, you know. Um, she takes him down. Mm-hmm. You know, she she kicks him around, punches him around, and we see, like, you know, again, he loses his connection with the dark world, and it's uh, it's actually a pretty satisfying ending. I actually really, really dug it. Um, even even if the villain is, you know, it didn't make me like the villain anymore, but but the fact that he's a kind of a, I think the fact that he's like a strong man voodoo guy is what makes it work because he can physically fight her as opposed to if, if it was just the master. Yeah, very true. You know? Mm-hmm. I guess I'm a little disappointed, though, that it, it seemed like he was so easily defeated after all that buildup. Like, once they started fighting, he was just down. And mm-hmm. yeah, she took him down hard, but I don't know. I guess I just wished that we would have seen the effects of the drug that he apparently injected her or, or just more mind games and to have a really difficult fight between the yeah. two of them. It could have um, used maybe a third part, you're saying? Maybe. I don't know if that would have been dragging it out too much. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I mean, the way to really throw her over the edge would have been to kill the little girl. But he hesitated. But I guess we're not in that type of combat era now. (laughs) But that would have been the thing to to really break her, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no. Thankfully, we're not in that era of comic books just yet with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I also am glad she slapped Bob Barton. That has been a long time coming. He's been a jerk since she walked through the door. She's, (laughs) She's been tolerant of it up till now. I I have gone along with all the other emotions that they've put into her, but fear I thought was a bit of a stretch because it's not really fear of finishing a report. I just felt like it was anxiety and stress Mm -hmm. uh, given the things that she was tasked with, and and fear was a bit much. Like fear, you're scared 
well, yes, that is a synonym, Stella. Um, but, but, but the anxiety, I don't know. I guess it's hard to explain now, but, but you understand it, what I'm saying. It's, it, it fears the wrong word. It is, yeah. it's anxiety, it's nerves. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, I, I, you had mentioned doubt earlier. Mm-hmm. And that's more the, you know, it's getting under her skin. It's psyching her out and, and okay. she's putting, a, she's having a lot of self doubt. Yeah, you're right. Fear, fear would be when she gets to the house and now I'm going to scare you into, but that's a scarecrow trick. Yeah. Very you true. know. Yep. Yeah, totally. I uh, love how he called it a Scooby-Doo house. That is right <laughs> <on> there. <laughs> With all the tricks. You want someone to come out and explain how it all happened. That'd I, wouldn't be great. Have away. I would have gotten away exactly. with it. Exactly. If-, <laughs> if it weren't for those meddling kids. Yeah, yes. our meddling kids. I do wonder what happened to the master. Will we see him again? Where is he? Because he just sort of disappeared after everything. Mm-hmm. But I was actually glad to see a repeat villain uh, for Batgirl. I think this is something that maybe subtly shows her importance in the comic world, just that she had a rogue for a, sm- a small time. Yeah. But, you know, despite all the buildup, I think just the story ends so abruptly <laughs> that I don't know if maybe pulling it out it would be too much and then it would drag, or this was just the only way to, to go about it. So I'm going to keep with my original score of seven. So equal, they, they both had pros and cons, but I think seven is where I'm going to stay here. Yeah, I'll probably keep my original score about a seven and a half, okay. um, mainly because... I think kind of overall, it, the whole story in two parts is about that. I was just noticing the master disappears after like page two. He's never in the final. She, for all she knows, she doesn't know the master exists. Yeah, exactly. Kind of how um, he's so he's like, God, I'm gonna drop a prequel reference. He's hid the Darth Maul to the Darth City. Okay. He's the Darth Sidious to the Darth Maul. Okay. But like he is, yeah. he's he's the, he's pulling the string. So right. I, like I said, I don't know anything else about Dr. Voodoo and any future the character may have had, but it's plausible that the master will abandon this guy and he'll pick somebody else up as a new mm-hmm. apprentice. That's yeah. actually a halfway decent premise. Yeah. So that he's kind of behind something if, if you wanted to bring this character back and have him, you know, screw things up more. But I never got the sense that the master was the one who was looking for vengeance on Batgirl. It was Dr. Voodoo, and the master was guiding him. helping him. Yeah, Yeah, but it's great that she knows nothing about him. I think that Mm -hmm. opens such a great door for a good potential story. Yeah. Okay, well, when we come back, we're going to review Batgirl 22. Let's see if I actually like this one. And Birds of Prey number 22. But now we have Zias' Radio Hour featuring First Date by Blink-182. Scared of what you think 
So you said you dropped Batgirl around issue 13 or issue 0. What went into that decision? What What are your thoughts on Batgirl before reading this particular issue? I was... Um, I had the last... Uh, I had read bits and pieces of prior Batgirl's solo stories, mostly in the main comics, though. Uh, Barbara and Cass and Stephanie and what have you. Uh, and when the new 52 was announced, um, you know, I, I, the, the biggest thing about the new 52 for me was that I dropped after nearly 20 years of collecting it, more than 20 years of collecting it, I, f- I dropped the Teen Titans uh, because I saw the previews of uh, Teen Titans and Red Hood of the Outlaws and I'm like, I'm done. I'm walking away. And I had dropped Teen Titans earlier, a few years before that, during the Sean McKeever run because I just wasn't really enjoying the book. Uh, but then came back when J.T. Krull had taken over the books and was actually doing a great job. So I had gone back and, you know, filled in being, you know, a collector in that regard, filled in the holes. But I saw what I saw, like Scott Lobdell and, and Brett Booth or whoever had taken over. And I was just like, no, I, I can't I can't do this. This is this. Michael Belly says this is my bridge too far. And uh, so I decided, OK, what am I going to pick up? Well, I picked up Nightwing. Batwoman, because I'd heard so many good things about her in Detective, and was, uh, and, and I'm actually gonna, I'm going to the Baltimore Comic Con in a couple of weeks, and I'm probably that's one of the trades that's on my kind of to get list because I'm like I need to go back and get the Detective Scott's the J H Williams the Detective yeah, stuff. I recommend it. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, I heard so many great things about it. I was bummed that I came in on that really late, so I picked up Batwoman. I picked up Wonder Woman, and they said that Batgirl, Barbara Gordon was going to be Batgirl again. And in all honesty, I picked it up out of curiosity. I was like, I want to see how they do this. Because at the point, at that point, I didn't know if they were acknowledging that the killing joke had happened yet. You know, I didn't, I hadn't read the first issue. So I read, I started with issue one and thought it was good. Um, I was like, okay, let's see where, where it goes. And then kind of had some of the same complaints you had over the course of the run where I wasn't, I wasn't hating the book outright, but I wasn't really that into it. And part of it was that I didn't really like, not that I didn't like Barbara, but it was just, I don't know. I, I just, I was like, you could have, 
did you have to do this with Barbara Gordon? It was kind of the question that I had, like with DC, like, couldn't you have kept Stephanie Brown? Like, why did you dismantle that particular dynamic mm-hmm. that those characters had? And then as the, the book went on and, and every once in a while, I just kind of take a look at the books that I'm reading in the new 52. And I say, you know, like what stays and what goes. And with this one, I wasn't, you know, I was I wasn't feeling it enough around issue zero. I do have issue zero. I think that's my last issue. Um, to say, hey, I want to hold on to this. So I decided oh, I was just gonna just drop the title. So it wasn't anything too dramatic. I was just like, no, I'll go pick something else up. And um, I'm glad I did read this. I, I I will say before you get into the recap, I did enjoy this issue. And uh, but I've. But I think I also dropped this in favor of like it was either uh, like Earth Two and World's Finest uh, at the time, which both of which I'm still enjoying. So I, I'm still getting my kind of uh, Earth has Batgirl fix in a way. Yeah. Although Helena was Robin, actually. Yeah. Uh, I still buy Batwoman though, and and I'm really really enjoying enjoying that title. Very cool. Do you think Batgirl? needs to be a, a dark character because this run is, is significantly darker than the Brian Q. Miller run that we saw with Stephanie Brown. No, and I think that's what partially what bugged me. That's what's bugged me about... Now, I like Scott Snyder, mm-hmm. but I haven't been reading Batman because I'm so tired of dark Batman. You know, I understand Batman's a lot darker than, say, Superman, but... And I understand that you can have a dark Batman title. I remember the Doug Mensch, Kelly Jones run from the mid '90s, which was very horror, horror oriented, and contrasted with the Chuck Dixon, Graham Nolan detective comics issues of the time, which were more, well, detective oriented. But the thing is, it's like they're so they're trying so hard to ape the Nolan films. At times that I'm just I tune out and I don't hate the Nolan films. Um, I see a lot of flaws in them, but I just I don't like the. You've got to let up on the throttle sometimes when it comes to just this sort of intensity of this dark and, and realistic and gritty tone that you have. And if you don't let up on it, like you people like me are just going to get like kind of get tired of it. And it's spread over into Nightwing and, and Batgirl because Nightwing it seemed like they were trying to do what they were doing with the old Nightwing book where it was, it still had its dark elements. It still had its crime. It still had its realism, its grittiness, yet it was fun in some regard because Dick Grayson's never been gritty and brooding. That's what made him such a great character in contrast with Bruce Wayne. You know, Bruce Wayne's a constant sourpuss. Dick Grayson's always going to be the kid. And he's always, you know, he's always slightly more optimistic. And I always felt that Barbara Gordon was kind of the same way. I always felt that, that from the, I went back and read Batgirl year one and some other stories with Barbara as well. I always felt that she, as much as she believed in the cause, she as just like Robin and Night, Night, slash Nightwing was still having fun. The Batgirl and Nightwing, and and if Robin had his own title, or if Tim Drake had his own title when he was Robin, Red Robin, should be the not the lighter side and that sort of like ha ha goofy lighter side, but sort of the more enjoyable side that that doesn't have to be so dark and brooding. The other thing that's been bugging me about the Batman books is why, and I know you're writing for the trade, but why does everything feel like it has to be an epic status quo changing event every six months with those books? I'm just like, let it go. 
<laughs> have have the Joker show up, do something deadly, but not have it like affect everybody's relationship with Batman every time he does. You know, you can go back to like, you know, my favorite my favorite Joker story is the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers. Uh, the, it was the strange apparitions trade uh, from the mid seventies. The, the laughing fish and the the, mm-hmm. the I can't remember what the other one is called. The Joker. Oh, one of my friends borrowed my copy of the trade. Um, oh, the it's, it's two of them right back together. It's like Detective Four Seventy Six and Four Seventy Seven, or Four Seventy Five and Four Seventy Six, and it's the Joker being vicious, um, killing people, and. You know, it has its dark elements to it, but it's not as gruesome as it as it has been. So I don't necessarily like Batgirl as a dark character. I don't think she needs to be light and goofy and silly. I think she kind of her and her and Nightwing have always brought a little bit of brevity to everything. And I think that's I think that's the right word. And I think they're missing that. I think that's why the that's why the DC New 52 can be disappointing from time to time. Is it called Sign of the Joker? Yes. Okay. I just did a quick. Yeah, Sign of Detective Four Seventy Five is laughing. Fish. Yeah, that's and a good. Four Seventy Six. If you can find that trade, Strange Apparitions, it's a great trade because it starts out with Batman being uh, like a Doctor Phosphorus story, but then Batman gets kidnapped by Hugo Strange, mm-hmm. and he finds out who Bat. It's very similar to that episode of um, Batman the Animated Series where he, where Bruce Wayne goes to like the convalescent spa mm-hmm. and Hugo Strange is running it and he figures out who he is and he's gonna, he, he does he auctions off Batman's identity he's going to and then there's this whole thing with Boss Thorne and and there's a great Deadshot story in there it's 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 Engelhart and, and Rogers and there's a Len Wein story in there as well it's really worth picking up very cool yeah I totally agree with you that everything is really dark ah. in the new 52 especially the Bat books and it gets to the point where if you know, I've got to read them for the Batman Universe comic cast, and mm-hmm. there are just times that I, like, need a break. Like, I can't read them back to back to back sometimes. I just need a breather. And there is sometimes order to which I read them because I know, like, what, how something is going to be. But it is, um, <laughs> yes, it, it weighs on you. And I always thought that Batgirl needs to be the light in that dark spot. It needs to be fun and uplifting, and she hasn't been that way in this particular universe and it's yeah somewhat disappointing that being said i read little gotham yes and it's little really gotham. fun and i yeah. really really like it it's like that one happiness yeah, in this fun. dark corner of the universe yeah oh well we have batgirl 22 a day in a life of endless velocity Writer Gail Simone, penciler Fernando Passara, and inker Jonathan Glapion and colors blonde as we pick up from the previous issue, Ricky is waiting at the front door in order to pick up Babs for a date. While Babs, covered in baking supplies and not ready by any standards, rushes to her room to get ready. Alicia is helpful, I guess we could say, uh, offering clothing advice slash judging Babs. And rudely, she brings up the fact that she can't offer any help given her last boyfriend. Oh, wait, that was your dead brother. So... Ricky and Babs, now in a slinky black dress, walk down the street arm in arm. Ricky has the opera planned with reservations at a French place afterwards. Within an alley, a creeper says, we got us a bingo. 
Babs wonders what Ricky really does on a first date, and he says that he likes to dance. So basically, he's my friend Donovan Morgan Grant, who likes to go to <laughs> dancing clubs. <laughs> he likes to go to dancing clubs. His He said his one goal is to like see uh, Josh and I at a dancing club in San Diego Comic Con. So I don't know if that'll ever happen. But Ricky doesn't know if that'll ever happen again since he uh, lost his leg. And Babs says he will trust her. Suddenly, the creeper from the alley holds Babs at gunpoint. Way to have your conversation outside of an alleyway, by the way. And two others hold Ricky. Apparently, Ricky's brother Rolo, who would name them after a chocolate-covered caramel treat. Because rollers are so good. (laughs) It's true. Rolo plans on expanding and Tyrell... And I wondered if Simone reads Game of Thrones, since that's, in fact, one of the families. Uh, Doesn't like that. As he threatens to do bodily harm to Babs and slobbers on her ear, Ricky creates a distraction by head-butting one of the guys holding him. Babs takes out her thug and disarms another, telling the final one to take his scuzzball friends and go. Babs explains to a curious Ricky that she has a cop for her father, so of course she can fight. They end up not going to the opera, but actually go back to Ricky's apartment where Babs meets his family and they have a nice home-cooked meal. Later, Babs and Ricky go to a club, and while it takes her a little while to loosen up, she ends up having some fun. At Babs' door, she explains that because her father's a cop, she doesn't want whatever Rolo is into to get in the way between them. Ricky professes that he is not into that, and Babs kisses him. Babs finally stops dancing long enough to go to sleep. Kind of a cliche line. Uh, The next day, Babs meets her father at GCPD in order to use the firing range. While Babs is clearly uncomfortable, she listens to her father's advice and fires at the target after envisioning both James Jr. and Joker. Her aim is marvelous, but she doesn't want to continue, and Gordon explains that the city has taken so much, he just wants to protect her. It is here now, after she realizes that he is afraid to lose her, that she decides she will no longer be Batgirl. That night, Gordon sits by the bat signal. Batman gives his respects to James Jr., but Gordon doesn't necessarily believe it. Batman explains that grief can break a man, and he's, of course, speaking from experience since his son, Damian Wayne, died. Gordon wants Batman to help him find Batgirl, but changes his request and then tells him to stay out of his way. And then point to Stephanie Brown, pre-New 52, Gordon punches Batman, (laughs) yelling at him for allowing a bright young girl to follow in his footsteps. Now everything is gone for her because he didn't tell her no. Batman apologizes but tells Gordon not to go down the road of revenge because that isn't him. Batman flies off and Gordon turns off the light. Next, Batgirl Wanted. So this is, you took a hiatus, I guess, eight issues or so. What are your thoughts on this issue? Part of me wants to pick up the next issue uh, because I'm kind of curious as to what Jim is going to do tracking down Batgirl. I honestly don't care about what Batman is doing in this issue. (laughs) I really am like, good, you punched Batman. He probably deserved it. Just like the guy from the last story, um, but but this is uh, this is really good. This reminds me of a story that people have been trying to ape for years and years and years, of varying degrees of success. It's the new Teen Titans. It's everything comes back to the Titans for me, of course. Number eight. It was called a day in the life, and it's 
Um, it's a one-off story that comes after a very large opening story arc for the team where it's basically the six or seven of them kind of this is their lives to the day. And there a couple of things do happen, but it's, it's one of those sort of downtime stories that, like I said, sometimes gets done and it's not done very well. And sometimes it's done very well. Um, the, the best example of, of a sort of downtime after a storyline story that I can think of that kind of comes close, that come, that is just on the level of that is X Factor 80, I want to say 7 from about 92. It's right after the Executioner's Song storyline. It's Peter David. And the team, because the team at that point is operating with, in tandem with the government or something, they all have to go into therapy with Doc Sampson. And it's basically there. It's it's uh, Jake Joe Casada actually drew it, um, so, and and it's actually done very well because this is Joe Casada twenty years ago, and um, it's all of them in therapy for the entire issue, just talking to Doc Sampson about their problems and stuff. And it's just this this kind of reminds me of issues like that, where she's not in the costume at all, and but she's still being she's still in character. She's still being Barbara, and we get to see a little bit more of the person behind the mask, which. I thought was lacking to a certain extent or she, she was, wasn't lacking in, in the issues that I had. She was just so irritating mm-hmm. and here she's not, she's actually, she's funny. She's, you know, she, uh, Simone is writing her with a kind of a good, there's some good comedy beats in here and she's charming. Uh, and I'm like, well, where has this Barbara Gordon been? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> And the art is great, by the way. The art looks, there are parts of this artwork where that's very like Phil Jimenez-ish. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love Phil Jimenez. So, so I was, even though it's not him, but it's, it's very much like that. Could have done without all the blood and gore. Of course, yeah. On the fight scene though. Yeah. Can never leave. Yeah, and that's been a disappointment here is, I think there are some books that, uh, in the New 52 that you go into realizing that it is going to be violent. And I always think of Batwoman, just the macabre aspect. And that is probably going to be one of the more violent books. But Batgirl shouldn't necessarily be that way, uh, which is always a disappointment. But, you know, take a, mo- uh, a memo, listeners, because reading this, I described it on TBU, was like coming out of a smoke-filled room and breathing nice Mother Earth fresh air. <laughs> And I, I actually really enjoyed this issue. I did not know what to expect. And it's not like I go in every issue thinking, well, I'm going to hate this. But I'm just like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll just read it. And I actually really liked it. You're absolutely right that, you know, Babs is written with wit. Most of the time she's written with these stupid statements coming out of her mouth or in her... Her uh, head bubbles, thought bubbles, there we go. Um, mm-hmm. But this time, you know, it's not like that. She's not emotionally unstable, which she has been for the past six or seven issues. All of the characters are really written with a purpose. You don't wonder, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I feel like it's it, it was just a great direction. And just like you were saying, it was great to see her outside of the mask, because we've only really been focusing on Batgirl. I feel like maybe we saw some Barbara Gordon in the very beginning of Gail Simone's run. But the great thing about Stephanie Brown's Batgirl is that it was very much 50-50. You saw Steph Brown going to college and, and life with her mom. 
and then you saw her as Batgirl, but this we've only gotten a snippet of what Barbara Gordon was like out of the mask, and, and mm-hmm. finally we got to see what this was like. I, while I liked the date, I thought that it was it was very wholesome, and it was fun and, and heartwarming all at the same time. I still don't like Ricky. I, you know, he was introduced midway in the run, and then we saw him in the the shipper special that the February issue that they sent out, and then she met him again at a soup kitchen, and I I still wonder how they traded numbers and set up this date, but he just doesn't, see, and I don't know what this is going to make me sound like, but he doesn't seem like the type of person that Barbara Gordon, the Barbara Gordon I know, would date. I mean, pre-New 52, where the era we were just reading, right now she's dating this lawyer guy. She was dating Jason Bard. She had mm-hmm. Senator Robert Clear. So really, like, mainstream guys. And, you know, a, a listener asked jokingly, I guess, did Barbara Gordon ever date... <laughs> Richard Nixon because she was in <laughs> she was in Washington DC at the time that he was in the Oval Office and I said I don't think I could see her with him because I it just didn't seem like they would match very well and he's yeah. not that Jer- attractive of a guy Jerry Ford's her type <laughs> There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, Ricky, he's got a good heart. I, I guess I, I just don't see her getting together with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just my problem. I, I can't get uh, over that. So the ending with Jim and Batman, what what did you think about it? Did you think this was too forceful and out of character for the commissioner that all of a sudden he would, he would punch Batman? Because I can see him getting emotional over everything that has happened, but then he's blaming Batman for Batgirl, and and I felt this was somewhat of a double standard. I mean, he's not even bringing up Robin or anything. What did you think about this interaction with the two of them? It's... I would have preferred that he told them off. Because the punch might... It's just... It's Granted, Batman probably deserved to be... Jim, at one point, there are times where I do wish Jim Gordon would punch Batman. So, but... But, um... This this really just calls for a, just where he's like that was for allowing a young girl blah blah blah. He mm-hmm. he could have expressed it by just tell, I don't think he needed to punch him. It would have been a you know uh, in my mind it involves cursing, you know just turning around and maybe yeah. Batman says something and turning and he's like you know f you, <laughs> you know, f you you and a blah and just like laying in them verbally and i mm-hmm. think that and i think that's would be more effective because now granted i like i said i haven't read a ton of the new 52 batman i don't know what the relationship between him and gordon is like but if i know anything about the post-crisis on infinite earths batman and jim gordon's relationship where there was a bona fide friendship for years this would have really cut if they if he had if he had yelled at him and cut and, and, and done that um, instead of punching him, it would have cut a little bit more deep than, than him punching him. In fact, you know what this reminds me of? Batman punching Superman in Death in the Family. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it comes out of nowhere. And, yep. and he just punches Clark, and Clark rolls with the punch. He's like, I think I broke my hand. Yeah. Um, and that's basically what it is. It's it's a it's him. It's a he's using he's he's transferring his anger. I, I'm, I guess that's the phrase. You know, he's just he's obviously not really that mad at at uh, 
at Batman, although again, it's is setting up the whole thing where um he's gonna eventually discover who cause I, he doesn't know who he doesn't know she's Batgirl. I never picked that up. No. Right? So he doesn't know it. Right. So so I think he's just kind of we're obviously setting this up. Yeah. When we're gonna get that, I don't know. And like I said, I may pick up you know, I'm right, sure yeah. that I'm sure that the comic store has the um I got this off the rack of the comic store. No, I got Birds of Prey off the rack of the comic store. So I'm pretty sure that they have the back issues of Batgirl. So mm-hmm. I could probably pick them up. If not, I can just get them off Comixology. So I might yeah. I might pick up a couple just to see if I want to get back into it, especially since DC canceled Demon Knights and I have a open slot in my play in my pull list. Yeah. So Okay. So what would you give it as a grade? I would go for about a a, a nine. In all okay. honesty, I really, you know, for somebody who had dropped this title, I would really uh, go with that. And I would have, it would have been a 10 had it ended before the rooftop conversation with Batman. Mm-hmm. If, if, the, if the thing had been the date and then the moment with her father, even if it was at a shooting range. Yeah. Even with the blood in the fight scene, oh, I would have probably yeah. given it a 10 or a nine and a half. The blood, the blood kind of takes away from it. But but for somebody who had dropped the title, wasn't really happy with it, you know, didn't hate it, but it was like, eh. And this being my first issue after a good year and a half or so, or a good year or so, I, yeah, I, I really, really liked it. Well, after two twos in a row, I am going <laughs> to give this an eight out of 10. Cool. So a step below you, but I, <coughs> I, I hold this in high regard. I thought it was well done. Still have an issue, of course, with Ricky and... Yeah, you've sort of pointed out some of the the flaws that I saw as well, but 8 out of 10, which is pretty high, I'd say, in this run. Yeah. Well, before we get into our last book, I did talk about in the previous one, I was just curious as to whether this tie-in with uh, between Birds of Prey and Talent actually pulled up sales or if it didn't. And so I did go and do some research. And so I guess if this is mindless and boring for you, you can fast forward. But in April, which was talent number seven, it was 89th sales rank, and it was selling about 24,000 copies. And Birds of Prey, which was number 19, was 96 sales rank, and it was selling 21,000. And that was the second month with Christy Marks as writer. So I think that's why I got a big bump. In May, talent number eight went down from 89 to 101 sales rank, and it dropped 2,000 copies, so from 24 to 22,000. And then Birds of Prey number 20 dropped from 96 to 110, and that was selling about the same, 21,000, so it it kept the same. I guess it was all relative. And then June, which is the actual tie-in month, talent number nine was 102, so it dropped again. And it dropped sales again, so to 21,755. And Birds of Prey 21 was 109, so it went up one. And it was selling less, for some reason, in the 20,000s, 20,767. So the trend is downward, Mm. um, even with the tie-in, because I wondered if the tie-in brought things up or if it was a, a chance to bring things up. But it'll be interesting to see what July turns out to be i can always check up on that again and when do they usually it's what every three to six months dc seems to 
take a look at its own figures and say, okay, we're we're getting rid of this, we're keeping this, we're launching this. Yeah. It's 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 almost cyclical, and and mm-hmm. I can't remember or how often it is. So it would be kind of a shame, even that um, because I, I actually like Christy Marks's writing, and uh, and I'll get I'll get to that I guess in my in my synopsis yeah. and review. So we have Birds of Prey number twenty two, which is two ninety nine. Uh, was is cover dated September 2013, um, and it is called Operation Kaizen. I guess that's how you pronounce it. The writer is Christy Marks. The pencilers are Romano Molinar and Robson Roca. Breakdowns by Scott McDaniel. Uh, inkers Jonathan Glepion and Sandu Floria. The colorist Chris Sotomayor. The letterer Desi Sienti. The cover by McDaniel and uh, Molinar, Glepian, and Sotomayor. So there was a quite a number of people on the cover. Assistant editor D- Daryl Shan, editor Rachel Kluxstein, uh, group editor Mike Martz. And the cover says "Threatened by Strike Force Basilisk," and it shows uh, Black Canary and Batgirl with kind of some purple energy coming out of their heads. And I can't tell if they're running away from the villains in the background or if they're running with the villains in the background. <laughs> Let's it, hope away. I think they're running away. It's just, you know, the, the, the guys in the background are kind of threatened. Everybody's kind of running at the camera and it's, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, they're supposed to be, those are the villains behind them. So it's obviously not new team members. We open in an abandoned building in Gotham City. Black Canary and Condor are heading for the building's mezzanine, while Batgirl is on the fourth floor. They're all on the trail of Strix, who has been fighting a, fighting Talon, and I think it's, like you said, I think it's a holdover from last issue. Anyway, they find Strix, and uh, who's simply sitting on top of a, of a sort of a mound of, of something of sorts. Yeah. Uh, she's wearing a new costume, mm-hmm. and she doesn't say anything ever. She just kind of perches there and stares silently at them. And we get a note that this ties into Talon number nine, and the birds leave the building, uh, blowing it up behind them. Condor tells them that they have to get back to the dojo pronto, but Canary cuts him off, saying they can't go to any location known to Starling, and she can't touch any of the accounts she set up. Uh, but they're not completely broken homeless, as he has a safe house, or at least he has his workshop. They go to a warehouse, which has all the comforts of home, more or less, and as they are there, Barbara gets a call. She winds up having to speed off. Meanwhile, in the Andes, a villain who looks a lot like Serpentor, but is named Regulus, talks about how the final pieces are falling into place and that Operation Kaizen is beginning and that Kaizen means good change because they're bringing good change to the human race. And he asks if he asks Cyclon if she's prepared her team, and she says she has. We get a splash page of people who didn't make the cut for the latest Gen 13 reboot. Hammerdown, Whipcrack, and Uplink. And Serpentor, I mean Regulus, dispatches them to Gotham to go after their former teammate, who we know as Condor. Uh, and for some reason, he also wants Black Canary, because apparently they have history. Mm-hmm. Painful history. And he says, he will break her. Days later, Condor and Canary are at the warehouse. There's no word, f- word from Batgirl. Strix is perched up on a ceiling beam, and she hasn't moved for days. Canary <laughs> worries that the team is coming apart, and Condor says that it's just a rough patch. One link thing leads to another, and they kiss. Canary kind of pushes him off, saying she likes him, but the timing's bad. Condor to fly, decides to fly out of the warehouse to take care of financial matters. A short time later at Gotham Municipal Bank, Condor hits the ATM or something and hails a taxi for 
not for himself, but for a little old lady. He's doing mm-hmm. a nice job and nice thing. He actually insists on paying for the taxi. Once the cab door closes and the taxi pulls away, this woman tells the cabbie, who is her son, that Condor has not only passed their test, but exceeded her expectations. Who knew? Back at the warehouse, Strix is still sitting around. Batgirl shows up fresh off the events of Batgirls number 19 and 20, uh, which I kind of appreciated how they worked continuity into this, just to kind of, okay, where does this take place? Where does that take place? Anyway, meanwhile, Condor flies through the air, and there's some sort of weird weather that springs up around him. He says, what? No, it can't be. Not now. And Cyclone appears and is all, did you miss me? He wants to know where Hammerdown and Whipcrack are, and she tells him that he needs to remember where his loyalties lie. We see Hammerdown and Whipcrack bust into the workshop and attack the birds of prey. Whipcrack puts an electric whip around Strix while Hammerdown goes for Canary and Black Girl. Condor and Cyclone join the action, and when she discovers that Condor knows these people, Canary thinks that Condor is yet another person she can't trust. Canary tells him that he was the enemy, he says it's not what you think, because it's what they all say. Canary says she's ending this now, and she tells everyone to stand back while she uses her canary cry. Cyclone then shouts for Uplink to do something, and Uplink says showtime synergy and launches some sort of psychic attack, which lays all of the birds out. And on the very last page, she's telling her team that they'll take Canary and Condor, but don't need the other two, to which Whipcrack replies, leave that pleasure to me. To be continued, needless to say. So as uh, this is the first time that you've read Birds of Prey? Uh, not since like the mid-90s when it would occasionally um, cross over into uh, the Bat books, yeah. How how easy was it to, to hop in on this? Actually, it was pretty easy. Um, the I had a vague idea of who like some of the some of the characters who I didn't know, uh, Strix and Condor and what have you, were mainly from listening to your podcast. But even if I didn't, I think within the first few pages, I could kind of pick up on like you know who who the members of the band were, so to speak, and uh, that were kind of coming off of something that was that was pretty monumental. So this is kind of another downtime issue, to a certain regard, or it's a regrouping mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. Um, the actions paced well. I think Marx has a really good really good gift for dialogue. The villains, on the other hand, it, m- m- my snarky comments probably gave away that I thought they were just kind of like they really do look like something out of out of a book from like 20 years ago yeah. uh, especially the way they're introduced because it's it's totally like you know hey we're this team and I'm this person and I'm this person and I'm this person and it's a it's a classic trope actually but but the fight works mm-hmm. so I can't I can't fault the villains too much the big bad you know I'm making Serpentor jokes and the other guy actually at first glance I thought he was Cobra you know the old, the one, the, the cobra, the, the villain from the '70s, the one who had like the cult in in Asia or whatever from the DC, from the old DC continuity. If you're unfamiliar with the cobra with a K, I don't know if you're familiar with that character from years and years ago. They don't use him as much as they used to anymore, but I guess that's not him. But the characters, their powers aren't too bad. You know, uh, the the weather thing, the tornado girl is. You know, um, that's a power we've actually seen on other characters before. I take it Uplink's power is to provide some sort of feedback or to like like bounce their powers back at them or something. 
and then you have the strong guy. So, you know, again, it's, I can imagine the next issue is going to be either they're captured and brought in and, and, and eventually they're going to figure out how to beat these guys or something. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't bad. They sort of reminded me of like the fearsome five or, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, very fearsome five. Yeah, or over in Marvel, it's the something four, isn't it? I can't I, remember. Over in Marvel, now. the villains with the names on them, I think of the Sinister Six, but that's Spider-Man. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, I don't. I don't. I there's, remember. There's the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and I'm not as well-versed in Marvel. <laughs> I don't think it's fearsome four. I no, I don't think it's fearsome yeah. four. But anyway, frightful four. Probably. Frightful four. Yeah, I totally get that. And it reminds me way back when in issue number eight when there was this break from the action and all of a sudden this other team was attacking the Birds of Prey. It just seems like this a new ragtag team. But I am happy at least that we're finally getting to the heart of Basilisk because this has really gone on for a while and okay. it's even been involved with Team 7. It's sort of popped up, but... I guess it all sort of started in issue number zero because there was a basilisk cell uh, in Dinah and Starling's origin, and that was sort of the first bad guy that they faced, and then it has been popping up a little bit, so now it's like, hey, this is the big bad of basilisk, so maybe we'll finally get to that. Uh, I hope that we find out who these people are more so mm-hmm. than just their names. You know, who is this leader? How is he related to Dinah? Mm-hmm. How about these other people? What about Condor? All mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. Um, I, I do wonder if it's too soon for yet another betrayal if Condor does in fact do that, maybe accidentally, and character troubles because we've seen this all all throughout this book character troubles and uh, I actually just wrote an article on the batmanuniverse.net that it's all sort of because of Dinah and just like mm-hmm. leadership issues and I tried to give insight as to how she could fix this and what she's been doing wrong but it just feels like one thing after another we're never getting a good team that works together without some drama popping up I like that she's the focus of the book though mm-hmm um, I like that we get to she get they get to develop her character and yeah. aren't relying on the fact that Batgirl's in the book. Right. You know, it's then the bat that Babs can kind of take a not a backseat, but but doesn't have to be the center of the book as well. Um, I maybe I don't know. Part of me says that Condor's kind of the he was the mole mm-hmm. inside Basilisk, and he was uh, he's always been protecting Canary in summer. You know, like that sort of situation. Like he was going to be good all along. Because you're right, if it's another traitor, it's like, you know, she might as well just go find Holly and <laughs> oh, <laughs> just gosh, start that yeah. mess back up again. Yeah. Did you, so. how did you feel about Dinah and Condor? This is actually their second kiss, and I'm still not feeling it. I think it's weird and forced. How did you think about it? It's, I, it, it felt weird and forced, but okay. then again. But then again, yeah. her reaction acknowledged that. Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. like it was, it's right. It is right out of a of a show or a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of like, you know, we got locked together in this room, we kissed, and then like, you know, at least she has the brains to be like, wait, wait, no, no, not right now. You know, um, what have you? So he's kind of putting the moves on her. Um, the artwork is pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's not. this has yeah, great you know, artwork. It's, it's, it's an, I, I not a big fan of the villain design. Um, 
at least the big bad just what's his regulus he looks kind of dumb but uh but the the big guy hammer down uh that's a very john Romita jr looking uh villain and some of these are they're better than than some of the other characters i've seen come out of the the 52 with the uh with the costumes and stuff i i swear sometimes we're back in the 90s with the the guns and the boobs and the you know everything so at least these people have powers i like the idea of a of almost a supervillain network you know, if 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 Basilisk and like I said, I this is the first issue I've ever read of this series. Mm-hmm. So if they're part of a larger thing, um, I always like stuff like the Hive or right or yeah. in, in the James Bond movies like Spectre. Yep. Because yes, I know it's not necessarily realistic, but at the same time, thirty million superheroes running around isn't necessarily realistic either. And I like the fact that the villains can be organized and you would have this threat and it would be part of the normal life in this universe. So I kinda like that, that there's that there's that. But then again, like I said when I was talking about my origin story, I the first comics I really bought on a regular basis that weren't the occasional Superman book were G.I. Joe and the Transformers, especially G.I. Joe. Um and the villain in that is a terrorist organization known as Cobra, which is filled of people in different costumes, and it's basically a supervillain terrorist organization. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, you know, I'm kind of used to it by now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but no, this was this is this is fun. This was actually a lot more fun than than I, I expected it to be. Yeah, and not not as dark. I mean, it's certainly not mm-hmm. like a light book, but I, I think that it, it certainly doesn't burden me and my heart when I read it. Mm. Uh, I do wonder what was with the old lady and the taxi driver and whether they're affiliated with Basilisk, because that just seems like an element that or a scene that was out of nowhere and didn't really connect back to anything. That's That's the... You know what that is? That's the scene in the show like Lost or one of those shows, one of those shows, Revolution or like one of those shows that's on now where there's one little scene and they don't resolve it for way down in the season. And it's like, hey, remember this scene way back then? And um, and, you know, everybody in the Internet had different theories about it and stuff. But yeah, that's kind of what it reminds me of, like in, in those serial way of, of, of storytelling and stuff. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're the good guys. Maybe there's a maybe there's an anti basilisk organization that isn't affiliated with the government that is gonna take these people down or something. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Who That'd knows? be an interesting thought. Yeah. yeah. I did I liked Uplink. I thought that she was kooky and interesting. But I she reminds me of Amy from Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. And um I and, like Amethyst. Yeah, and I just wondered if if this is true because Chrissy Marks was actually writing that book before she came on this one mm-hmm. and I'm actually uh, going to interview Chrissy Marks coming up soon so I'm definitely going to ask her if there is any inspiration with this uplink character and what that was about tell her my, my wife loved Jem <laughs> I'm not people kidding been, yeah people I'm not kidding out when they heard yeah we it's they were rerunning it on the hub uh, I don't know if they still do, but at one point they were, and and we came across it after an episode of My Little Pony, because um, it, it was just like nothing on, and we happened to watch the new My Little Pony, and my son was like watching it, and he was like five, and I was like, this is actually pretty fun of a cartoon, and then Jem came on, and it was like, Jem, and she's singing along to the theme song, and then we're watching the show, we're like, 
were like, this doesn't hold up as well as it did. But then again, neither does the Transformers or G.I. Joe, despite what geeks yeah. will tell you. Those cartoons are just as bad. But yeah, so, so yeah. Um, she does kind of look like Amy. I, I need to go buy that showcase because <laughs> I don't want to pay full price for it, but I really do. I had a couple of yeah. old issues of Amethyst that I like that title. I like, I'm not a huge sword and sorcery person, but there is the occasional thing where I'm like, this looks like a really interesting title. And that was always one that I was like, this is a pretty cool idea for a comic. My final comment is more of a qualm. Um, you know, Batgirl, like you said, it's great that they brought continuity in, or mm-hmm. with continuity. But when she comes back, well, first of all, it just seems like the timeline is squished. Everything mm. that happened, James Jr. and all of that stuff. But I guess comics drag things out. So maybe in her book, it makes sense. Yeah. But Batgirl is just really emotionally stable here and raring to go. And in her own book, she is not like that. And so it's just like a very interesting hourglass or viewfinder to look through. Like this book, she's ready to go. And I like it here. Whereas Mm -hmm. the other one, she's like drinking, which apparently she doesn't ever do, and crying and and just, man, someone put her out of her misery over in that book. But so... (laughs) so It's all in the writer. It's just interesting. I guess so. Yeah, Chrissy Mark should also write Batgirl and see what happens. Uh, But I give this just because of the... I think it's a good issue, not the best issue. And, you know, I'm not set on the team as well, but there's certainly interesting points. Seven out of ten. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Like I said, it looks like a good setup for something. Um, There are things in here, if I were to nitpick it apart, I'd be like, yeah, so I'd, I'd give it about a seven out of ten as well. Can I also say how much I hate this Channel 52 thing in the back? Just give me a letter oh, call for yeah. crying out loud. Yeah. Now over to Chris Carnes for Batman 66. Thanks, Stella. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Batman 66 comic book review segment. I'm Chris, and I'm glad you could join me. Thankful that you downloaded this episode, and I appreciate you listening today. You think Gotham City is a peaceful city? Ho, ho, ho! Put your gum under your seats. Hold your breath and get ready to cheer Batman and hiss his diabolical enemies. Hissable enemy number one is now about to strike. That was the opening line voiceover in the very first episode of the 1966 Batman TV series that featured Frank Gorshin as the Riddler. So it seems very fitting that the Riddler is the villain in the first issue of DC's new Batman 66 title. Our story, The Riddler's Ruse, is written by Jeff Parker. The artist and colorist is Jonathan Case. Wes Abbott did the letters, and Michael and Laura Allred did the cover art to the standard edition. First released in digital download format, our story opens at Gotham Park, and Commissioner Gordon being awarded a statuette of Lady Gotham for his illustrious work. The Riddler swoops down on a biplane and snatches the statuette. Bruce and Dick, their in attendance, change to Batman and Robin and pursue. Shooting a line from the Batmobile, Batman makes his way to the plane. A skirmish follows with the plane crashing. Batman unhurt, and a riddle left behind. Hot pads make me shake a tail. This leads our heroes to the Meow Wow Wow, a new dance club owned by, wait for it, Catwoman. At the club, the duo find a fake statuette that's really a bomb, sent by the Riddler while he made off with the dancing cat statuette from the art museum. The duo manage to keep everyone safe and agree to take Catwoman to the Batcave. With Catwoman's help, it's figured the Riddler will strike next at Gotham Park. Once there, they lie in wait and pounce when he arrives. Riddler is turned over to the authorities, but Catwoman gets away with a cat statuette. But no worries, she has taken a replica. 
the end. Case does an excellent job here with the artwork. Not only does he capture the manic glee of a Frank Gorshin Riddler and the vivaciousness of a Julie Newmar Catwoman, the details are outstanding as well with the zip tone backgrounds and the characteristic sound effects of Bad Fight. Parker takes full advantage of the comic book format to show a story and scope that would have been practically impossible for the live action series, most notably with the fight on the biplane. He captures the nuances of character dialogue with Batman and Robin, as well as the supporting cast, particularly with Chief O'Hara. I like Catwoman getting a return trip to the Batcave, this time willingly. Fans of the TV series may recall a prior time in the TV episode entitled Scat Darn Catwoman. I did have some minor quibbles. Seeing Alfred happily slide down a bad pole initially brought a smile to my face and a lighthearted, humorous moment. But I have to admit that Alfred would not have done this on the TV series, much less in the comic books, and it was a wee bit out of character. Catwoman's henchmen were not in their usual tiger-striped jackets and fur hats, and while it was nice to have a surprise window cameo during a bat climb, the choice of Dracula, which may have been an interesting notion in one's mind, the brief encounter of two quote-unquote bat men, just came off as misplaced and odd, even for a story such as this. For what it's worth, actor Andy Devine played Santa Claus in a window cameo during a back climb in the TV episode entitled The Duel is Slumming, but at least that originally aired in December. One of my favorite elements of the TV series was the death trap slash cliffhanger, which was a staple during the show's first two seasons, not so much in the third and last season. Perhaps some fans consider that element a bit overdone and cheesy, but I liked it. I really didn't feel that element of surprise or how will he slash they get out of this in any of the situations in this issue. I do hope a cleverly written cliffhanger does appear in future issues, but based on what I've seen from the digital releases to date, I'll have to wait a bit longer. Batman fans may complain of yet another Batman title in the comic book racks and give this one a pass. However, if you're a bit nostalgic like myself, live in a part of the country that gets the MeTV channel and access to Batman reruns, or if you're looking for something a bit less dark and moody, this may be something for you to try. Batman the Animated Series, The Batman, and Beware the Batman all had or will have their own comic book series and will be someone's first exposure to the Batman character. Whether you like or liked their incarnations or not, it will probably influence and create fans that draw them to the comic books, as reruns of the 66 TV series did for me. And if you think that the fans of the 66 series are not around anymore, I suggest you seek the 1966 Batman message board online. Overall, Batman 66 number one does an effective job of capturing the tone and feel of the TV series with nice artwork and storytelling. I think it opens up for some intriguing possibilities ahead for some interesting and imaginative stories, and I will grade this one 9 out of 10 bats. Will Chris return to review future issues of Batman 66? Will there be a decent cliffhanger in any of the future issues? Will Stella ever like two consecutive issues of the current Batgirl? These and other dire questions to be answered. Download the next episode. Same Stella time, or thereabouts, same Stella sight. Back to you, Stella. Well, next up we have Babs in the Tube. The Adventures of Batman with Robin Boy Wonder. Batman and Robin, dynamic duo against crime and corruption, whose real identities as millionaire philanthropist Bruce Wayne and his young ward Dick Grayson are known only to Alfred the Faithful Butler. 
ever alert, they respond swiftly to a signal from the police. And moments later, from the secret bat cave deep beneath Wayne Manor, they roar out to protect life, limb, and property as Batman and Robin, Cape Crime Fighters. Batman and Robin, scourge of Gotham City's kooky criminals. The Joker, clown prince of crime. The Penguin, pudgy purveyor of perfidy. And the cool, cruel Mr. Freeze. Watch out, villains. Here come Batman and Robin. And this is pretty exciting. Uh, the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And this is the first episode. Uh, and we watched the 1968 Batman Superman Hour. And mm-hmm. for our purposes, it's really the Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder, since we're not talking about Superman at all. And this was episode two. And season one, episode two. So there were four stories all together. The Cool, Cruel Mr. Freeze. The Jokes on Robin. Can a Luther Change His Spots? And Superboy Meets Mighty Lad. And this aired on the 21st of September, 1968. But we're going to be focusing on The Jokes on Robin. And this is starring Olan Sewell. <laughs> This is going to be as Batman, Bruce Wayne, and Alfred Pennyworth, Casey Kasem. I knew it. Great. Yeah. I knew it. I was like, that's Casey Kasem. Yeah, it's definitely like the uh, Scooby-Doo stuff. Here's your request and dedication. Yes. As Robin and Dick Grayson and Chief O'Hara, Jane Webb as Batgirl and Barbara Gordon, Larry Storch as Joker, Ted Knight as the narrator, and Commissioner Gordon. So, here's a brief synopsis. After getting physically entangled while trying to apprehend the Joker, Robin begins to be a nuisance for Batman. Batman decides to work solo, which doesn't really happen. Robin discovers his equipment has been gimmicked by the Joker, and after removing the gimmicks, he helps Batman capture the clown prince of crime. And since these are such short episodes... I decided to just sound capture the entire thing for everyone's listening um, so you can use your imagination as to what's happening. So listen, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Aboard the yacht of a visiting potentate, Batman and Robin arrive to help protect Gotham City's royal guest. Suddenly, man overboard! Help! I can't swim! I'll get him, Batman! Uh, 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 easy, fella. Don't fight me. Grab hold, Robin. I'll pull you in. A short while later, in the bizarre hideout of Batman's arch enemy, the Joker. And the boy wonder thought I was really drowning, Joker. Well, this is the beginning of the end for Batman and Robin. <laughs> Police heard a rumor that the Joker's planning to raid the Gotham Toy Fair. Holy hijinks! What would he want to steal there? Let's find out! At the toy show, a crowd waits for the unveiling of a giant jewel-encrusted jack-in-the-box. Now we press the button and see Jack jump out. <laughs> Nobody budge until my associates 
Remove that priceless toy. <laughs> the toy stays, Joker. You're being removed. The dynamic duo. Clobber them. They should roll them in the aisles. No. Would you like to take a ride? Cool it, men. Oh, mask Manhunters. Sorry I can't stay for the finale. <laughs> I'll take him out, Batman. Missed by a mile, boy blunder. It's out of control. Sorry, Batman. Because of me, the Joker got away. Forget it, chum. We'll get him next time. What's the laugh? We didn't get that jewel box. Who cares about that? It's Batman and Robin. I'm really tying with. <laughs> and in the days that follow. I'm sorry, Batman. This bat grenade will stop him. Stop. Ooh, Robin. Now, friends, we prepare for the final phase of my plan to shatter Robin's confidence and render him useless to Batman. <laughs> At this very moment, in central headquarters, Commissioner Gordon's daughter Barbara, who is secretly Batgirl, witnesses a grim conference. Gosh, Batman, with all my goofs, I've even become a menace to you. Perhaps, Boy Wonder, you're overworked. Maybe you need a little vacation from crime fighting. Attention, Commissioner Gordon. Joker reported in vicinity of Gotham Clock Factory. Guess I'll have to go this one alone, old sport. Sorry. I understand, Batman. Bye, Dad. Got a rush. Exit, Robin. Enter, Batgirl. See you back home, Robin. Got room for another passenger? Batgirl. Now look here. Please, Batman, you need an extra hand now. Good luck, partner. <laughs> Moments later, in the factory's clock tower. The minutes, Batman. You and Batgirl will meet and merge exactly at midnight. <laughs> we go now to loot the factory of its valuable jewel works. <laughs> but we will return to enjoy your final moments. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Wayne Manor, side of the secret Batcave, Robin has resumed his identity as Dick Grayson. Funny, Alfred. My battering feels wobbly. Wish Batman could help me find out why. Look, Alfred. A tiny lead weight. It threw the battering off balance. My word, Master Dick. This will interest Batman. Look at the bat rope, Alfred. It's been saturated with a liquid that makes it stretch. How fiendish. Wait. That drowning man. 
It was all an act. While you were struggling, he must have switched utility belts on you. Right. Now forget the bat psych already. I'm going to find Batman. <laughs> Just a few more kicks, and then... <laughs> Guess again, Joker. The boy blunder. Not anymore, my friend. Bullseye, champ. Got your control back. Yeah, I'm wearing my spare utility belt now. Everybody, out! Be with you in a second, buddies. Move, you clowns! Mind if we drop in on you? Hurry! Oh, they're fit to be tied! Don't go yet, Joker! The party's just starting to swing! Robin has a favor to ask, Joker. Yes, when you get to the prison workshop, please repair all this equipment, you gimmick. Ha <laughs> ha! Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was the first episode that we've ever seen from this, <laughs> this particular... Uh, so, what are your thoughts on this? Um... Okay, I, I didn't look up the credits for the episodes. When you said the Joker was Larry Storch, uh, it made total sense. Because I, I had written down Fred Lynn, Sid Caesar, Soupy Sales. I was like, this, he's just like this old-timey. In fact, this is the kind of characterization of the Joker that co- carries over to Scooby-Doo uh, in, the, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animation is slightly less quality. Yeah. This was, fil- was this the filmation company or was I this Hanna Barbera? So, yes. Hanna Barbera did Scooby Doo and I think Hanna Barbera did the Super Friends as well. Why is Robin such a putz? <laughs> and I and the know. puns. Oh, the puns. It's it, it's not a it's it first what is it, ten minutes, six minutes or whatever it is. It's not terrible to watch, but I was just like, wow. This is <laughs> you just like want to reach into into the screen and grab Dick Grayson and pull him over and say this is why they make fun of you. It's not the pants. George Perez makes the pants look good. It's it's the dialogue, Dick. You and you're just what are you doing? Um, and I'm surprised that Gordon doesn't have a mustache, which was weird to me. But he did. He, he didn't have a mustache on the TV show, did he? No. It's been a while since I've sat down and actually paid attention to something beyond Batman and Robin and Batgirl um, on the TV show. And uh, and there, there's a lot of goofiness in here. It's, you know, it's it's fun in that sort of, you know, short cartoon way. Robin calling them buddies is a little goofy <laughs> through it. And I thought I, I like I like seeing Bar I like seeing Batgirl. Yeah. Uh, in the cartoon, it, it was always whenever you're watching cartoons like that, even if it's Batman the Animated Series or Batman um, and Robin or whatever iteration of that is, where you would get an episode where it wasn't just Batman, where it was Robin or Nightwing was there or Batgirl was there, um, that when it was first run, and I was a teenager when it was first on, but that would always make me sit up and pay a little bit more attention. Because it wasn't just, you know, Batman facing off against, you know, Freeze, the Scarecrow, the Joker, whoever he's facing off against. So anytime, and this Justice League was the same way, anytime you had a slightly outside character who wasn't normally on the show come on, I watched 
a little bit more closely because it was kind of cool to see a different character doing something. And I, I take it that the Batgirl isn't always in this cartoon. So it was kind of, and I had never seen Batgirl animated uh, in this style before because I had mm-hmm. the first time I ever saw Batgirl in a cartoon was, I think it was the one you did commentary for that I still haven't listened to because I have to rent the 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 show or watch the show with it is the one where they have that sort of she gets thrown off a building and oh they think she dies and yes. she does and that's the first time I ever saw Batgirl in a cartoon that's an excellent episode and I don't remember why I can't remember the title of the episode Over the Edge <laughs> it, it, uh, so it is the one yeah it's it's the, it's sitting in my in my podcast queue I just have to get off my butt and return the disc to Netflix and get the disc but that was the first time. So seeing her earlier than this, um, as far back as the late 60s, early 70s, when we've got these cartoons, is kind of a treat. And it's, you know, it's it's the Joker. It's it's a, it's clearly a kid's cartoon. Yeah. Um, not, not trying to get an adult audience in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. It certainly had a Scooby-Doo feel to, to it. Yeah. <laughs> So I feel like anyone who's seen Batman meets Scooby-Doo is just like, they're ready to go. It also really started off like a Silver Age comic for me, just because Batgirl, you know, she's, she comes to help Batman. And he basically yeah. flat out says, no, I don't want you. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, she still comes along and then inevitably she becomes a damsel, even though yeah. Batman's also in trouble as well. So... It's just pretty interesting how it felt very Silver Age. Yeah, it it's, it, it reads like a code-approved book, so to speak, yeah. doesn't it? It's this sort of like you know the Joker has to set up an elaborate trap, yes. and and Robin gets them out of it, and yep. you know, with with his impeccable aim, and you know all the other things that. Yep. That, I that, do wonder, you know, the very beginning, how how. Is it that someone could switch a utility belt without it getting noticed? Like, how could you not feel someone around your waist unhooking and then hooking something else on there? I just can't get my mind I, around that. There is, there is no no prize for that. It's just, okay. it's, it just happened. It's, it just happened. Just, yeah. just go with it. Just, just go with it. Oh man! And By the way, if yeah. Oh, a quick comment on the other Batman thing. Because I, I I had taken notes because I didn't realize you know I, I thought for a second we we're gonna do that one too just really quickly on the cool cruel Mr. Freeze I just want to make this note why would Bruce Wayne actually put gold bars his own fortune like why not fake yeah. that stuff that 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 I don't know that drove me crazy for the whole episode it's like and Scrooge McDuck giving away the money bin yeah. <laughs> and just that Freeze is like oh Batman and Robin have turned evil like you would yeah. easily believe that. <laughs> It, yeah, they're it's, both. It's, yeah, it's almost like a comic out of the. These are both almost like out of the '50s comics or those yeah. early '60s comics, but prior to the Carmine Infantino mm-hmm. reinvention of Batman. Yeah, uh, but they they work. It, yeah, it's still kind of fun. You know, I mm-hmm. can't. It's there are worse cartoons out there, and there are worse superhero cartoons out there. Yeah, out there. Trust me. Yeah, and I think all the puns that you were mentioning, I think certainly they're trying to go off of the love of the live action and, and mm-hmm. bring that fun over here as well. So uh, yeah. I do wonder, one section, how did Batman and Batgirl get hit by that swinging trap? I mean, it's I, like a pendulum. How, how, how could you not dodge out of that? I was just, 
I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I didn't do too well in physics in high school, so uh, I'm yeah. not gonna. It's Maybe it's comic physics. Yeah. yeah, but I I don't necessarily grade these, um, so. You can give a grade I if you do, so I don't, desire. I don't but. think uh, it's it's worth the um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's worth the price of admission because it's mm-hmm. so short, and it's worth taking a look at out of kind of a curiosity to see how these were done back in the day. Yeah, you know, it's not the Fleischer Superman cartoons right. by any means, yeah, which are still phenomenal and hold up. And these these are a step below, say, your average episode of Super Friends. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't go out and buy these on DVD, but the fact that you can find them on, um, on well, the I found YouTube. this on YouTube. Yeah. So. Yeah, just so type in the episode. You can't find the Superman ones because we, mm-hmm. we looked those up, but looked you those, can yeah. definitely get Cool, Cruel, Mr. Freeze and Jokes on Robin if you type yeah. it in on YouTube. So, Okay, well, next up is literature recommendation. And, you know, I've got an English teacher with me. So <laughs> you, please, honors go to you to recommend I, first. I um, I was trying to think of what I read over the summer and then what I assigned for class and what have you because I, uh, I teach 10th grade English and I have um, – I'm also the yearbook advisor at my high school. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have a lot of, of, of yearding. But uh, – I teach it two sections of an advanced course and then two sections of a uh, of a collaborative inclusion general level English. I teach with another teacher uh, for who's a special education teacher and blah 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 teaching. Uh, but I was thinking of like what I assign throughout the year and what have you. And and I I, I do have a couple of recommendations. Um, a couple of things that I read over the summer. Uh, and one thing that, that I'll, I won't be reading again until around December, January with my students. Um, I read actually the day I went to see Man of Steel, I popped into the local Barnes and Noble afterward because I was, I was like waiting. I was, I was bored or I was waiting for something or whatever. And, uh, I went and grabbed, found a copy of it's Superman by Tom DeHaven, which had been recommended over and over and over again by uh, the number of Superman podcasters, and uh, it was excellent. It was a really, it was a uh, Superman's origin uh, in a novel form, but as if it took place in the 1930s, and it's a really well done uh, reinterpretation of Superman's origin. Uh, it was a really really fun read. I, I got it in paperback for all of you know five ninety nine or whatever the paperback was. Um, other than that, I've been um, I. In addition to being a comic book geek, I'm a I'm a New York Mets fan, so I've been reading a couple of books uh, that people I know who have written about them. But uh, but as far as actual literature recommendations, uh, I recently read what my friend assigned for his AP English class for summer reading. I reread The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, which is a phenomenal book about Vietnam. It's 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 not it's fiction. It's not so much a novel as it is a collection of different vignettes uh, that all tie together. Um, and I actually am reading it because uh, if you, those of you may not may not listen, I actually do a, I do a podcast called In Country, which I'm taking a comprehensive look at Marvel Comics series The Nom. And The Nom ran for 84 issues or so, and I decided I'm going to make it a 100-episode series and, and along the way I'll do specials so this is one of the books I'm going to cover so I was doing notes and stuff and but it's a really good book it's metatextual of course it's violent and it's you know it's 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 a war novel uh, it's not for the faint of heart uh, but it, it is it's very very well done um, my sophomores right now we're about to discuss Albert Camus The Stranger 
and as well as Life of Pi, because that was their mm-hmm. summer. Yeah, and I, I really like Life over of here Pi. too. The other books that we read in my class, if you're interested in following along with my sophomores, Marcus Zusak's The Book Thief, which is a young adult novel that takes place in World War II Germany uh, and, and ties into the Holocaust. We read Elie Wiesel's Night, which is yep. his experience in the Holocaust, which is mm-hmm. a phenomenal book. And the, believe it or not, the one book that, that people are like, you teach this book? And believe it or not, I get people to actually like All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm. Uh, which I didn't think I'd like. I taught it about six years ago for the first time. I was like, this is a phenomenal book. And then we read a couple of plays. Um, actually, uh, we read Twelfth Night, uh, which I could recommend. And what I actually just started reading because the American Shakespeare Center out in Stanton, Virginia, which is about an hour west of where the area where we live, yeah. is going to be performing as you like it uh, in, in the spring. So I went downtown to a used bookstore on the mall and, and got a beat-up copy of, of As You Like It. And I'm going to reread that for the first time in a good 16, 17 years since college. Uh, so um, I think I'm one of the first people to recommend Shakespeare on your podcast. You may be, yeah. <laughs> but I would, I would seriously, if, if, if you shy away from Shakespeare, I would go out and take a look at um, the comedies and I would take a look at... Um, my three favorites are ten things. Uh, ten things I hate about you. The Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, which, which was right. Twelfth Night and As You Like It are my three favorites, and I also enjoy The Tempest and 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 not so much with Midsummer Night's Dream, although that's a very good one. But so a kind of a hodgepodge of of different things. I've read a an an enormous amount of stuff lately, <laughs> but uh, but I'm I'm enjoying the Shakespeare that I'm reading lately because it's been a while since I sat down and read Shakespeare for pleasure, and that's worth getting an audiobook form too, for you audiobook fans out there because you can hear it as you read it and it's it's worth getting. So those are mine. I don't know how many people will take take pick them up, but yeah, there you go. Well, I just put the things I carried in my Amazon wish list because. Oh, cool. I actually really like to watch and read things about Viet. I don't know why Vietnam War era is like one of my favorite eras to really watch I'm, movies and things like that. Maybe my my dad was almost drafted, but he got out of it because he only had one kidney. So maybe I it's see. just like my closeness with that. I, I think it's the same thing with me. My dad was in, in Vietnam. He served in the mid '60s uh, in the Air Force. So. I think that's kind of one of the motivations for me, but I'm the same way. Like Mm -hmm. I picked up, I was in the comic store. This goes back two years ago. And I was like, I want to, I want to pick up a back issue of something I never read, you know, because the back issues there at the time were like a, uh, at the time they were just giving you back issues for cover price. And I was like, you know, I've never read the nom. I go into the back issue bin. They have the first 12 issues. And I just grabbed all 12 issues of the first 12 issues of the series. And I'm like, this is really good. But yeah, I'm the same way. I, I just have this fascination. And Tim O'Brien is one of the better writers. Um, he's got a few other novels. I just picked up Going After Cacciato, which is one of his other ones, but I haven't read it yet. So, But The Things They Carried is a really, really good book. There's some funny parts to it. There's some horror in there. And uh, it's, it gets a little weird at times, but it is really, really worth reading. I just started reading The Fountainhead. And I'm only about 70 pages in, so I cannot give you a definite recommendation or not. See you and in a few years. 
What'd you say? Isn't, isn't that book like three million pages long? Um, I think this one is six hundred. You maybe isn't Atlas Shrugged the one that's ridiculously yeah. long? Yeah. But I know I'm, that people either hate or love that author. Uh, so never, never interested. I do have War and Peace sitting on my Kindle, and maybe okay. one day I'll actually read that. So. <laughs> oh gosh, maybe for several days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I've got two comic. I actually have like a bazillion comic re- recommendations, but I've narrowed it down to two. One is like a main book, and one is uh, an independent. So FF by Matt Fraction and drawn by Mike Alred. Uh, mm-hmm. And Matt Fraction is also doing Hawkeye, which I really recommend. And Fantastic Four, which I kind of liked, but not enough to keep buying it, so I've actually dropped it. But the Fantastic Four have gone off because mm-hmm. they have some issues with their their structure basically breaking down their bodies. Mm-hmm. And so they need a team to actually guard the planet, and it's supposed to be for only like 15 seconds or something, and of course something goes wrong. So you've got Scott Lang as Ant-Man, Jen Walters as She-Hulk, Medusa, Queen of the Inhumans, and she's probably the most ridiculous character just because she's not from this world, so the thing she says is funny. Mm-hmm. And then Miss Thing, and I can't remember her name off of top of my head now but she's dating johnny storm Um, andy andy leyland just did the did an episode about this book and it sounded really cool i can't remember the name of the characters i didn't think that i would actually enjoy it when i started reading it but i actually really got into it and it, it was hard in the beginning because there were all these different people that i had no idea was going on miss thing okay that doesn't help me wikipedia Goodness, because that's not really Darla. Okay. Okay. Ooh, Darla, and she has pink hair. She's like this rock star of some sort. I don't even really know how she got into it. I think she was just a placeholder, but now she's actually having to go on missions, which I think is the worst thing in the world. But anyways, it's this ragtag team. You wouldn't expect to like it, but I actually really like it. And if you didn't read the FF Volume One. You may be a little overwhelmed just with all the people that you should have known, but you didn't. But like me, I was able to just sort of grasp what mm-hmm. was going on and keep going. So I do recommend that. It's just really fun, and, and I think it is better than Fantastic Four, which I was a little disappointed about. And my independent book from Archaea Publishing is Rust, Volume 1, and they have two of them out. But Volume 1, Visitor in the Fields, by written and illustrated by Royden Lepp. And this is the... Amazon blurb. Rust is a high-octane adventure set in the prairie lands of an unknown time. Life on the Taylor farm was difficult enough before Jet Jones crashes into the barn, chased by a giant decommissioned war robot. Oldest son, Roman Taylor, struggles to keep his family's small farm afloat as the area heals from a devastating world war. While the rest of his family may not trust the mysterious boy with the jetpack, Roman believes the secrets of Jet's past may be the key to their survival. It is a beautiful book. It's certainly it's an all-ages book, and it's more images than words, but it the way that he captures the action and what is going on without using words is wonderful. Not to say that there aren't any words whatsoever, because there are several conversations, mm-hmm. but it's just really great, and it reminds me of sort of anime films where they often take place place in this time you don't really know when it's happening and, and this war that is going on it's sort of like that just you, it's probably some other 
dimension or earth or, or mm-hmm. place that you know is far away but it was just it was wonderful and i can't wait for uh to read volume two which is already out so there you've got cool. a mainstream book and an independent and i'll keep you guys posted on whether fountainhead is good or not <laughs> cool Ah, <laughs> oh, well the right. next segment is reading with stella presents Batgirl to Dare the Darkness by Doug Mensch, a story taking place in the Batman and Robin the Movie universe. Copyright 1997, Little, Brown, and Company, New York. Chapter 2, Hidden Faces. The dark side of the Moon nightclub had been abandoned when the neighborhood turned bad. Its overlaid facade of bolted boards, plywood panels, and sprayed graffiti served to disguise its true face, one of many underworld hideouts tucked into the dark corners of Gotham. Where celebrants had once laughed and dined and danced, criminals now gathered. In a back room, one such criminal sat hunched over a long workbench. His face was hidden by a Chinese dragon mask. On the bench before him lay a row of nine other masks, most of them tribal, some of them garish, all of them bizarre. The dragon-faced man turned the first mask over, exposing a small slot in the forehead area of its inner surface. Then the crime boss known as Black Mask entered the room. He wore a brimmed hat, black gloves, and a dark double-breasted suit out of an old gangster movie. None of the criminals who served him had ever seen his face. Just his polished ebony mask, sinister and not quite human. When he spoke, his words were deeply muffled. You're prepared for the nine new members? The dragon-masked man at the bench did not turn from his methodical work, yet replied immediately and in tones of total obedience, Yes, Black Mask. As he had done with the first of the nine masks, he now inserted something into the slot within the second. Everything will be ready for the initiation ceremony, but we are running low for future recruits. Black Mask grunted hollowly. Don't worry. A fresh shipment arrived tonight. Enough to build a small army. A third man, wearing the hawk-head mask of the Egyptian god Horus, entered the room. Trouble on the docks, Black Mask. What kind of trouble? The hawk-faced man shifted his weight, seeming nervous. We, we drove down, he said, to pick up the shipment like you ordered. And you took it over to the warehouse? Uh, no, not exactly. We, uh... Spit it out, Black Mask commanded. Well... We stopped when we saw all these lights, cop cars all over the dock, so we 
We turned around and came back. Black Mass jerked his head and stared off at nothing. When he finally spoke, his voice was murderous. Gordon, he said, and he'll pay. His whole city will pay. Then he shoved Horace aside and stalked out of the room. At the workbench, the Chinese dragon inserted a small square button into the inner surface of the ninth mask. His work done, he stopped and sat utterly still. His mask showed no emotion, nor did it hide any. The dragon simply awaited further orders, as did the god Horus. Three gleaming vehicles roared through a jagged tunnel of stalactites and stalagmites, coming to a halt in the main area of the Batcave, which sprawled beneath Wayne Manor. Robin leaped off his Redbird motorcycle, moving toward the Batmobile even as Batman emerged. Batgirl watched, still astride her sleek Bat-Blade cycle, as Batman accepted Robin's presence without objection. The two moved off toward the cave's crime lab area, side by side, as if partnered since birth. Even their strides were in sync, swift and long, although Robin had to strain a bit to keep up. Batgirl dismounted and followed at a distance, feeling like an unnecessary third wheel. As a newcomer to this team, she wondered if she would ever find her place in this tight bond between Batman and Robin. Still keeping her distance, Batgirl nevertheless watched with keen interest as Batman shifted to his intense detective mode. He analyzed the mystery chips under microscope and spectroscope in black light and red. He immersed them in various chemical solutions and checked them again. He compared them against a full range of other conventional silicon chips. Through it all, he said nothing. Robin had wandered off a short distance to the parallel bars, where he was working through a routine of twists and flips, honing his acrobatic abilities. As Dick Grayson, a member of the Flying Grayson Circus Act, he had been a world-class aerialist even before meeting Batman. Now, knowing that his mentor might well be absorbed for hours, he saw no reason not to sharpen his skills even further. But Batgirl watched the analysis with rapt attention. She was still in her dark outfit, but had long since removed her mask. Gradually, as the exultation of the battle on the docks ebbed, she found herself becoming Barbara Wilson again. And as a young woman who would major in computer studies in the fall, she was particularly fascinated by Batman's work. Finally, the Dark Knight detective linked three circuit boards in sequence, soldered one of the mystery chips into the makeshift electronic maze, and connected the whole to an amplifier. Dick rejoined them in street clothes, scruffing his wet hair with a towel, just as Batman flipped a switch on the amplifier. Test tubes vibrated and clinked in their tray on a nearby lab table. Barbara felt a dull ache in her head, a rhythmic pulsing that was distinctly unpleasant, even disturbing. Dick actually clutched the towel on his head and yelped. Batman flicked the switch off. Dick smacked the side of his head like a swimmer trying to jolt water from his ear. What was that? I haven't fully cracked the mystery, Batman said, but I've determined that these chips are capable of producing ELF waves. Elf waves, Dick repeated, for midget surfers? The Batman was not amused. Elf, E-L-F, stands for extremely low frequency waves. <laughs> I knew that, Dick grinned, even though he hadn't known it at all. Stereo or surround sound components? Chips for driving subwoofers? Barbara stepped forward. Subwoofers produce bass tones meant to be heard, she said. I felt something, but I didn't really hear anything. None of us did, Batman said. ELF waves resonate far too low for the range of normal human hearing. What about bat ears? Dick asked. Too low for them, too? Batman ignored him, staring down at the implanted mystery chip. Low enough, in fact, to be harmful to the human brain. Then he pulled off his cowl. 
It was almost dawn, and Batman was done for the night. It was time for Bruce Wayne to begin his day as the chief executive of Wayne Enterprises. The dark side of the moon's main area was a vast room, dim and nearly empty. A number of masked guards were stationed near the cracked and stained walls, all facing inward. Black Mask himself stood atop a table in the center of the room. Suspended from the ceiling above him was a large disco ball caked with years of dust. Below him were the nine new recruits, each holding a mask in his hands. They looked up at him, ready for initiation into the False Face Society of Gotham. Black Mask raised a gloved hand to signal the start of the ceremony. You are about to experience a secret power, he said, and it is the power of the mask. The nine recruits shifted uneasily, exchanging glances, not knowing whether they should shudder or laugh. Black Mask continued, his muffled voice growing louder, as if reciting an incantation of increasing potency. Know that the mask destroys one identity while creating another. Know that the mask reshapes and remakes its wearer, altering the former personality and eliminating all inhibitions. It disguises the wearer even as it intimidates the wearer's victim. Any deed becomes possible behind a mask, and that is just a part of the power. Then he stopped to let the speech sink in, and to observe its effects. One man from out of town, a car thief holding the mask of a Sumerian demon, muttered softly from the side of his mouth, Is this kid kidding with all the mask blather? It's a joke. The man next to him, a homegrown arsonist holding the inlaid mask of a Mayan priest, hissed back, Quiet! This gink is already the biggest crime boss in town, and his gang's the place to be in Gotham. The masks are weird, maybe, but they make sense, unless you want to be identified by some witness after a job. Black Mask was amused by the furiously whispered exchange. He had not made out the actual words, but he could guess the gist of them. Skepticism was nothing new among recruits. They all thought he was crazy, at first. It was time now to initiate those nine into the same blind belief and obedience that governed his veteran followers. I see some of you still have doubts, he intoned loudly, but the power of the mask is real, and you hold the proof of it in your hands. Don the masks, become the power they hold, become new entities. Several of the nine obeyed at once, eager to join this mysterious man's gang, desperate to become rich without working. The others lifted their masks more hesitantly, feeling ridiculous. The Sumerian demon was the last mask put in place. Finally, when all nine had succumbed to greed and stood before him with their faces covered, Black Mask was satisfied. He reached a gloved finger to a small button concealed in the temple area of his own mask. And now, he said, feel the power of the mask. He pressed the button. There was no audible sound, but the nine initiates clutched their heads and spasmed violently. Several made guttural noises of pain. But it was all over within seconds, whereupon the nine men stood still, almost at attention, much like the perimeter guards, docile, but waiting. The mind behind the Sumerian demon mask no longer thought it was a joke. Indeed, for as long as he wore his activated mask, or merely remained within its range, he would no longer think or say or do anything, except whatever was commanded by Black Mask. The power of the mask was a very real phenomenon. But all the power emanated from a single mask, the one that was capable of transmitting, but not receiving, extremely low frequency waves, the one that was very carefully insulated against ELF waves. It was a dark mask carved from the lid of an ebony coffin, and supposedly imbued with all the power of death. And so, atop a table in vast gloom, under a faintly glittering ball of mirrors, Black Mask stood supreme above his brain-dead followers. 
His false face society of Gotham was now a small but growing army of zombie puppets, all emotion blanked from their hidden faces. To be continued. Final comments. What can you tell us about what you're doing? What would you like to, as we like to say in the podcasting business, pimp out? Well, not that much of a pimp, yo. But um, <laughs> I am uh, taking flight is, is in its last couple of episodes. Um, uh, until the hiatus. Uh, yeah, until the hiatus. Yeah, it, 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 I, the, the, the episode I just recorded, I do say it was the final episode, but as I was saying earlier when I was talking to you, uh, of course, you never say never. So for all I know, I'll probably be back in the spring, but right now I'm just, I'm a little tanked on that. But that that is a, that is a podcast that is up at the Batman universe, and I cover um, uh, Robin and Nightwing, primarily Dick Grayson, although I've done a lot more with Tim Drake as I've gone through the Dick Grayson story because Tim Drake figures into that in a big way. And um, I am at the tail end of Prodigal. Uh, and the and uh, so the episode that I just recorded but haven't posted yet is the last two parts of Prodigal plus I do Nightwing number 25 which is my favorite Nightwing Robin story uh, it is a Chuck Dixon written story called The Boys that is them blindfolded on a train but it's them kind of talking about stuff and it's a awesome awesome story so that's taking flight i have two other podcasts um one as i mentioned a little earlier is called in country it is a bi-weekly podcast where i take an issue to look at an issue of the nom and i want to say i'm on as far as released because i've got several in the can but i'm on issue four will be coming out soon i think three or four uh, is, is where where i am at right now so that just started and that'll go on for about 100 episodes because the series is about 80, 80, 45. And I also have a blog with a monthly podcast associated with it called Pop Culture Affidavit. It really is a look at everything that's completely random in the world of popular culture. Uh, I post, I haven't posted in a couple of weeks because I've fallen behind, but I usually post in a, a, a column or essay or whatever you want to call it about something. It could be a toy, it could be a song, it could be a TV show or movie or what have you. And then once a month I have a podcast associated with it where I take a kind of a pretty deep look into it. Um, Past topics on both the blog and the podcast have included, uh, I did the Stephen King novel It at one point. I have been taking a occasional episode by episode look at the show Degrassi Junior High. I go way back with Degrassi Junior High. (laughs) And I'm actually at the end of Junior High. When I start taking a look at those, I'll be on Degrassi High. And and if you didn't know, by the way, they're available to watch for free on Hulu. Mm, So I just, I just saved you hours of, of boredom. Uh, but yeah, Degrassi High, I, I've looked at comic books. I've done a very comprehensive look at, at the 90s issues of the Teen Titans. Um, and my last couple of episodes of the podcast were I did an episode on, um, I did St. Elmo's Fire at one point. I talked about Say Anything, which is one of my top favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time. I The one that just came out about a week or two ago was about Cameron Crowe's other movie, Singles. And the one that at this point I'm in the middle of editing, guest stars Michael Bailey, and the two of us sit down and talk about Savage Steve Holland's movies, which are Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, and How I Got Into College. Three, uh, two John Cusack movies and another movie from the 80s. So that'll be out. That it might be out by the time this is up. If not, it'll probably be out within the next week or two. And then I'll be going to Baltimore Comic-Con and I'll be doing an episode about that. So 
yeah, I'm just kind of all over the place and, and actually getting stuff in the can so I can walk away from podcasting for a little bit because the school year just started and my head is exploding mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah, you're well you. aware. So yeah. yeah. It hasn't started yet for me, but it'll, it's yeah, coming. It's coming. Tomorrow's orientation. I was going to say we got, or, we got first grade orientation on Friday. Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure. I'm so yes. glad that you got to come on here. I'm I'm glad too. This was a lot of fun and and when I if and when I do decide to relaunch Taking Flight, I would love to have you on to talk That'd about yeah. Dick and Barbara so and Tim and yes. Stephanie and all that. Yeah, I'd love so, that. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That was great. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backgirldoracle at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, or like me, I don't know. Uh, or follow us on Twitter at batgirl to oracle Like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well, because of course that's sort of my brother in arms. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Backworld to Oracle, the Barbara Vernon podcast. Thanks also to bcbd.com, the big cartoon database, for the episode summary for the jokes on Robin. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?